0: One of the things that we're looking to do is eliminate the transmission of HIV from person to person in the UK by 2030. That's a big goal that we're all uh, really working towards. Some of the people that we're speaking to now who are, you know, 13, 14, 15, when they're in their 20s, they might not have to worry about HIV anymore if we're successful. Like, it it won't be circulating anymore in the UK. Sexual and reproductive health is the national priority that it deserves to be. This fear has pervaded, it's, it's, it's persisted, and there hasn't been that kind of mass media campaign to update people about the modern reality of HIV. If you have an undetectable amount of HIV in your bloodstream because it's been controlled by medication, that means two things. HIV is no longer attacking your immune system. You can live a long and healthy life, you'll have a normal life expectancy, but also you cannot pass HIV on to your sexual partners, and that's really important for people to be aware of. This is the thing that surprises a lot of people. There are more women than men living with HIV. So 53% of people around the world who are living with HIV are women. People were dying of AIDS, and it didn't seem like anybody was really helping or caring. And legislation was being brought in that was, you know, pushing things backwards. Some of the advances that were made, were, you know, it seemed like they were going to be rolled back. And I, you know, not to be dramatic about it, but I kind of see the same noises happening today. Once you start teaching about these things, you also have to teach about consent and boundaries. And, mm. you know, that's something that I think is being done much better now. Like it was, I don't think it was done at all before, um, but it's being been d- done much better now with young people. But people my age and older don't understand consent and boundaries very well at all.
1: I think as well, where we were speaking about negative media depictions, it's important to have, for example, like these podcasts and You know, it's a sin, um, AIDS, the untold tapes. I know that's obviously kind of going back to, you know, the more harder times, but it's important to show that the positive side that the movement is bringing. Welcome back to Sexonomic, the podcast where we speak about all things sexual economy. Today I have a very special guest with me, his name is Eugene and he works for the Terence Higgins organisation. Eugene, if you want to let the audience know a little bit about yourself and what you do and what is the Terence Higgins Trust.
0: Okay, um, so I'm Eugene Lynch, Uh, I'm the Positive Voices Manager at the Terence Higgins Trust A little bit about me, so uh, I originally grew up in Ireland, you can probably tell from the accent, I moved to London in 2004 and in 2013 I was diagnosed with HIV, so 10 years ago and um, I had a pretty rough time for the next few years in terms of my mental health, addiction, drugs and alcohol, a lot of anxiety, a lot of panic um, and eventually things got so bad, you know. It was really debilitating, so at that point I contacted the Terence Higgins Trust for help. I got some counselling, specific counselling for people living with HIV. I got into rehab and really started to turn my life around. Basically ever since then I've been uh, volunteering and then working for the Terence Higgins Trust. So my job involves managing our Positive Voices programme. We have almost 40 people living with HIV all over the UK who share their personal stories and we also raise awareness about HIV in talks to lots of different types of audience. And I also manage the HIV Confident Ambassadors program, which is a new program based in London, which is supported by London Fast Track Cities. And the aim of that program initially is to work with people in the health and care sector to get them to understand HIV and HIV stigma um, a bit better. But that's uh, going to um, expand in scope over the next few years. And then we do some kind of specific stuff in my area as well around, we've got like a specific positive voices program in prisons that we're doing in partnership with a couple of other organizations, Sophia Forum, CI Square Bureau, and we're working with the National AIDS Trust to um, just improve the situation for people living with HIV in prison um, Mm -hmm. and to raise awareness um, in prison about uh, issues related to HIV. So that's kind of me and the day job. Um, The Terrence Higgins Trust is the largest HIV and sexual health charity in the UK. We have um, a range of different services. So I work in our Living Well area and that's kind of everything to do with living well with HIV. So we provide lots of different types of service, including counselling for people living with HIV. We also provide counselling for people who are not living with HIV, but who want to talk about kind of sexual health issues and that sort of thing as well. And we provide a helpline, THT Direct, um, which is open, I think at the moment, five days a week. And it Uh, you know it will answer lots of different types of questions that people might have we also have a few different things that support people living with HIV including our hardship fund advice service so we give people advice on things like housing and benefits and, and we can do some very basic legal advice but we can also signpost people to other organizations so that's our living well services the rest of the charity got a few different things that we do but a large part of what we do is providing sexual health services in various different areas and those are commissioned by either the NHS or by local authorities Um, so we For example, in Bristol, in Brighton, in Essex, we uh, manage a lot of the local sexual health services, um, and that's a large part of what we do as well. Um, And that'll be everything from uh, providing support to people, doing some basic testing, outreach services, uh, working with the community. There's a lot of very kind of community-based work that we do in in that area. We also do kind of policy and advocacy work as an organization, so we try to influence government policy on HIV and sexual and reproductive health. And the aims of the charity are uh, kind of threefold at the moment, so uh, one of the things that we're looking to do is eliminate the transmission of HIV from person to person in the UK by 2030. That's a big goal that we're all uh, really working towards. One is to be here for people living with HIV for as long as they need us. And then thirdly, to make sure that sexual and reproductive health is the national priority that it deserves to be. So that's kind of the charity in a nutshell.
1: Okay wow it's a lot of information but thank you for sharing. <laughs> so obviously your diagnosis and the affiliation with the charity started back in 2013. Obviously we'd come a long way from you know the 80s and when this kind of really expanded but what would you say are the milestones that have got better since 2013 and what? can get better after
0: this. Um, if I go back a little bit, mm. one of the biggest milestones in kind of the fight against HIV was the availability of effective um, combination therapy to suppress HIV. So it's a treatment for HIV that's very effective. It's not a cure, uh, but that came onto the scene around 1996. We sometimes talk about before 1996 and after 1996, because that's when things really fundamentally changed. After 1996 we got lots of different types of medication available for people who are living with HIV and right into the 2010s we started to get um you know a situation where you could take one pill every day and that would be enough to suppress HIV and for you to live a long and healthy life. Um, One of the key milestones was the fact that we proved in the mid-2010s that people who are on effective HIV treatment can't pass the virus on to their sexual partners. It's known as U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. So we knew that from the mid-2010s onwards, and we're trying to kind of get that information out as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Another couple of milestones, uh, PEP became available for people who need it, again, around that time. PEP is post-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, so if you've had a risk for HIV in the last 72 hours, um, you can go and get on PEP and you won't be able to acquire HIV um, as long as you take it correctly. And then uh, PrEP also became available, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis. So that's a pill that you can take to stop you from getting HIV. Um, that became available sort of 2014, 2015 to a large extent. People started accessing it in various different ways. They were uh, you know, buying it privately and that sort of thing. But then um, later on, sort of 2018, 2019, it became available on the NHS for free, people who needed it. So that's another big milestone, the availability of PrEP those things combined mean that we're in a situation now in the uk where the number of new diagnoses of hiv has been falling consistently since about 2014 Uh, so there are fewer and fewer people being diagnosed every year and that's that's great news we're working towards the next milestone which is 2030 where we want that number to go down to zero so we can get to a stage where we eliminate the transmission of hiv from person to person
1: So the job now doesn't so much seem with medication and people taking medication, but the bigger problem now seems like working with stigmatization. And that seems to be the final push, if I'm right or if I'm wrong.
0: Yeah, um, stigma is the biggest thing that we need to tackle in terms of HIV. Uh, And that's for a few reasons. People living with HIV experience a lot of stigma in lots of different ways in society. Um, A lot of it is based on fear the fear that's been around since the 1980s and a lot of it's based on outdated information that people have so you know people still think that not from reliable sources no not from reliable sources (laughs) people still think that hiv is is a death sentence or um, that it's very easy to pass on or that you could get it from sharing a cup with someone or from a toilet seat you know stuff that we thought we'd left behind people still believe and that's largely because of the stigma that's associated with HIV. So that's one thing that we're really trying to tackle, both because it will improve the lives of people like me who are living with HIV, um, you know, so that we're not demonized. But also we know that this goal of eliminating transmission, we won't be able to get there unless we tackle the stigma associated with HIV because people who fear HIV stigma are less likely to take a test. Um, You know, they'd, they'd rather kind of not know then have their fears confirmed, like we know that from kind of studies we've done, people we've spoken to. So if we can take away that stigma, if we as a society can look at HIV as the you know the modern um, virus that it is, uh, and, the, and the fact that we've got kind of effective treatment and ways of preventing transmission of HIV, um, if we can get uh, people to understand that better, then it will take away that fear. It will take away the the kind of mystery that sometimes surrounds HIV.
1: Yeah, so it's almost bringing people to a place where they're having tolerance and they are getting educated. But again, I did an interview with Dr. Frankie when she started doing work around this. The thing that came to her straight in mind was the tombstone of AIDS, the advert back in the 80s and kind of all the fear back then. And that's your first introduction as a, even as a child, when you kind of ask, oh, what is HIV? I know that's certainly the first introduction I got and I'm 25 next month. So for me to get that and not to even be born then is very indicative of the stigma that still goes around.
0: Absolutely. Stigma that exists is rooted in the messages that people got in the 1980s. So there was this big, as you mentioned, advertising campaign that the government did.
1: By a famous director.
0: Yeah, you had, you know, this kind of big scary voice. It was John Hurt, you know, doing a big scary voice. It was on TV. Uh, There was a leaflet put in like through the door of every household in, in, uh, in the UK. And the tagline was AIDS, don't die of ignorance. And that was like, Um, You know, AIDS was was chiseled into a tombstone in the advert. There was another advert as well called the Iceberg Advert, which was um, very, very similar, but it was basically like, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg.
1: Because the messaging was not wrong in a sense. You don't want to die from not knowing about something. I can't help but feel the fear mongering probably was the wrong thing. And that it's one of those things that deliverance was not the right message.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it was quite strategic. I don't want to kind of defend it because I think it's caused a lot of problems. But I think it was quite strategic in that it was the first thing that really started putting out information from a reputable source. Because there were there was lots of rumor and stuff flying around. So they were kind of saying like, this is what it is. Um, this is what you need to know about it. It could affect anyone, which was the message that they you know they were putting out. Uh, very clearly which is true and that you need to be informed like those things were correct those are the kind of things that you would you would hope but the way that they delivered it was to try and make everybody really really afraid um, so fear was the tool that they used to try and get people to protect themselves and what that did was instill this huge amount of fear that people still have today whenever they hear HIV or or, or people talk about AIDS sometimes as well this fear has pervaded, it's, it's, it's persisted, and there hasn't been that kind of mass media campaign to update people about the modern reality of HIV, which mm. is that it's a controllable illness, and it's one that we're looking to eliminate, you know, and we, and we can eliminate. We could be the first country in the world to do it by 2030. So we, we had a life really changed campaign. It was an award-winning campaign, and there were posters up in bus shelters and in like billboards and stuff like that. In some kind of key areas where there's high prevalence of HIV, so around London, in parts of Glasgow and in and, and Manchester, and a few other places, and the tagline of it was, um, "When when I was diagnosed with HIV, my life really changed." And then for each individual person who's featured in the poster, there would be like a, something that changed when they were diagnosed with HIV. So there are things like I became a pilot. Uh, I'm training to be a nurse. Became a radio presenter. There's lots of kind of like different things, just to to show people that you know HIV has changed. You know the the, the way that we look at HIV has changed, and people are living, you know, people aren't suffering uh, with HIV. They're living, you know, well, living long, healthy lives with HIV.
1: And you can still get access to the parts of your life that you thought might stop because of the stigmatization, because a lot of people would never, I'd assume, want to kind of confess that they do have hiv because of the stigma so the fact that those people can go on and have careers and you know be a pilot or train to be a nurse or a dj host you know it shows that even you know socially things are getting better
0: yeah absolutely i mean the the pilot things was important as well because there was a rule until very recently that you couldn't be a pilot if you were living with hiv Um, how come Uh, it was a thing that was a holdover from the 1980s Um, it it was a rule in the UK and other parts of the world that basically said I don't know what the thinking was I think it was something to do with some of the um, complications that you could get if you developed AIDS related illnesses, some of them were brain related and they could affect your brain I think that's where it came from but right up until I think about 2018, 2019 there was a, a rule that said you couldn't be a pilot if you were living with HIV and we managed to working with others get that rule changed because it didn't make any sense it didn't hold up to the kind of m- modern kind of medical reality. So that has changed. There's a few things that have changed in recent years through some of the campaigning work that we and other organizations have done. People can now join the armed forces living with HIV. Up until two years ago, you couldn't. If you're diagnosed with HIV while in the armed forces, you can You can have a full career. That has changed as well quite recently. There's a few things that like HIV shouldn't uh, limit someone. And there's a few of those like old little things that we still need to change one of the things is there's a ruler in in boxing that you can't um you can't box if you're living with hiv oh. because people fear you know blood and, and things like that but again that doesn't hold up to medical reality um so that's one of the things that we're looking to change Has and to also there's a, a
1: hell of a boxing match
0: you know boxing can be a blood sport but Somebody who's living with HIV, who's on effective treatment, who has an undetectable viral load, is not going to pass HIV on through blood. It's actually really, really difficult to pass HIV on through blood, even if you have a high viral load. It just doesn't happen in reality. Again, the fear and the misinformation is one of the things that's still a holdover, that people kind of think, oh, blood is one of the things that contains HIV. Therefore, if I come in contact with someone's blood, it could be passed on to me. That's just not really how it works. Um, It's it's quite difficult to pass on HIV.
1: But it's possible through blood is what you're saying, but it's not um, as likely as people think. No, no. no.
0: So if you look at the statistics of new cases of HIV in the UK, the vast majority of cases of HIV are from unprotected anal and vaginal sex. Those are the two biggest... by far the two biggest routes of transmission of hiv the third one and it happens about 50 to 100 people every year in the uk for the last five ten years have contracted hiv from sharing needles when injecting drugs yeah. so that is a that is a route from blood where you can um contract hiv and if you think about that and apologies uh, if there's a triggering for any listeners but um when people are injecting drugs they're drawing blood generally into a syringe where the you know drugs are mixed up they're then injecting themselves they're then passing maybe that needle on to someone else they're doing the same thing. And so they're injecting directly into the bloodstream. There's a very short window of time when that needle is passed from one person to another. There's a vacuum inside the needle which protects, you know, any HIV that might be present. So that is a way that HIV can be passed on through blood. But if you think about, you know, in the NHS, people are taking blood from people all the time. Needle stick injuries happen, which is where you accidentally prick yourself with a needle. We haven't had a case of HIV transmitted uh, from person to person through a needle stick injury in the uk in the last 24 years it's only ever happened five times and we know from the studies that have been done nhs workers who uh, have a needle stick injury are exposed to patient blood that contains hiv in transmissible quantities on quite a regular basis and you know we haven't had a transmission that way in, in 23 years plus um any other potential route of transmission that involves blood will be less risky than somebody accidentally pricking themselves with a needle
1: so the ones people have to kind of look out for and kind of take the i suppose responsibility is the right word is sex Yep. Yep. okay absolutely yeah Yeah.
0: Uh, if you are injecting drugs make sure that you use clean fresh needles that's really important needle exchanges are available but the main way that people might contract hiv is through sex and it's important to know how hiv is passed on what different activities you know could on HIV and how you can protect yourself
1: okay so best methods of contraception I know it sounds quite basic but it's it's good to kind of get the message out there so how's the best way to protect yourself from HIV
0: okay so there are lots of different ways this is where I'm supposed to say like condoms prep testing treatment PEP. we can go through all of those But I think it's important to think about it in terms of like an individual and, you know, their own mental health, the way that they approach sex and stuff like that. I think it's really important to kind of start at that kind of psychological level
1: before the physical. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, you know, looking after your own sexual health and taking care of yourself in general um you know being kind to yourself whatever that's really important if you take an approach to this that it, it's not like this horrible chore that i need to do to make sure i don't get hiv but it's like something i'm doing uh, as a way of taking care of myself is you know looking after my sexual and reproductive health i think that's a good kind of mindset to be in yeah um so and knowing things like you know what your boundaries are and um you know being prepared and stuff like that is really important so then the methods that you can use um Condoms are very effective at preventing HIV transmission, um, unwanted pregnancy. They'll reduce the risk of most of the STIs.
1: What's the stat on a condom? Because I guess that's for a lot of STIs.
0: Yeah, um, so it really depends on if they're correctly used. Yeah. So it's important to know how to use a condom correctly.
1: I think this is for the straight men. They don't really know. <laughs> the amounts of times like a man's looked at me and said, can you put it on for me? It'll be sexy. Like, learn to put on your own condom. <laughs>
0: There are demonstrations available. um, So, you know, it's important to know. It's also important to know that there are different types and sizes of condom available. And it's important to get a size that fits you. That's really important.
1: Don't soothe your ego. Don't buy an XL if you're not an XL.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, making sure that, for example, um, you know, when you're putting it on, you've got to um, pinch the the teat at the top to make sure that there's no air trapped in the condom because that's where it can easily break. Um, I had
1: um, an ectopic pregnancy from a broken condom and I think it's maybe because of that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's serious
0: and can be quite painful. Um, It
1: can be life threatening, uh, but it's really important to squeeze the top. Yeah.
0: Um, so condoms do break. That's the thing. Yeah. So you got to make sure that you're not um, doing anything that would rip or tear the condom when you're putting it on. You've got to make sure that um, there's enough kind of space.
1: Using the right lube with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If you're going to have uh, particularly rough sex, if that's what you're into, or if you're going to have uh, anal sex and stuff like that. There are extra strong condoms you can get as well, um, but all condoms are, are quite good at actually you know, uh, providing that kind of barrier. It will massively reduce the risk of, of HIV. If it's used correctly, it pretty much eliminate the risk of HIV and also unwanted pregnancy, and it will reduce the risk of most other STIs. The only reason I'm not saying it completely eliminates it is there are STIs like herpes that can be passed on just through skin-to-skin contact, and it would be extremely unusual but not impossible for something bacterial like chlamydia or gonorrhea to be passed on just through... Um, You know, genitals coming together. Yeah. Um. You know whether there's a condom involved or not, but you know that's very, very low risk.
1: You should also be no shame in people asking when they had the last test, or would you be able to get tested before if it's quite a serious partner? Or
0: yeah, I think if you if you're uh, getting into a new relationship, or if you are, uh, you know, coming out of a relationship and you're thinking I'm actually probably going to be quite sexually active for the next while, that's a good time to test. Yeah. Um. Just to get like the full MOT. So testing is one of the other kind of things. So condoms is one. Testing is one, treatment is one, and we'll come on to talk about PrEP and PEP as well. These are all ways that you can prevent HIV transmission. Testing is really important because you need to know your status. So sometimes people ask us, like, uh, what symptoms would I have if I got HIV? And it's not usually very useful to talk about symptoms because a large number of people won't get any symptoms at all. So the only way really to know your so HIV status is to do a test.
1: That's why it, when it first arrived in the 80s, it got so bad because people were not having symptoms. And then obviously the migration to AIDS. Yeah. The,
0: f- the the first symptoms that really showed up that showed that there was something going on were people developing very serious life-threatening AIDS-related illnesses. Those when are, it's too late. Yeah. yeah. And that would be... You know, uh, they will have probably contracted HIV maybe seven to ten years before, on average. They wouldn't have known that anything was wrong really for that period of time. So, uh, what we need is to diagnose people as early as possible. We need people to test regularly for HIV and know their HIV status. That's really, really important. Um, and testing, there's lots of different ways you can do it. Um, so, you can go to a, a GUM or sexual health clinic. Um, you can get a test there. Uh, most of them provide rapid testing. So you prick your finger a couple of drops of blood you'll get a result within 15 minutes it's very quick those types of tests wherever you're kind of pricking your finger and getting a a couple of drops of blood or there's also an oral swab test where you swab your gums um, they'll give you a conclusive result 90 days after a risk so there's a window period it's important to be to remember that
1: if it's not through saliva the infection how come they can swab your gums
0: that's a question that comes up a lot when we do our talks. So saliva is not a bodily fluid that can pass HIV on to someone else. It's quite hostile to HIV, so it breaks it down. And that's why, in many cases, oral sex doesn't represent a good way of transmitting HIV, because of the presence of saliva. However, uh, what the oral swab test for HIV does is you swab your gums with it, you get like saliva and some other kind of material on it. It detects antibodies. So your immune system's response to the presence of HIV... And so you're doing an antibody test. A lot of tests are what are known as duo tests. So they're looking for antigen, which is the protein on the outside of the HIV virus, and antibodies, which is what your body produces as a, you know as a response to the HIV being present. So um, when you're swabbing your gums, you're looking for the antibodies that your immune system is producing in response to HIV.
1: Okay. So take me through like what the actual virus is in terms of the science. So someone is in a situation where they are infected by HIV what is the thing that's going on internally with them in terms of what the virus is? Okay,
0: so um, the process would be you come in contact with HIV, uh, usually through sex, um, through a bodily fluid. It needs to get to your bloodstream, first of all. Um, So it's absorbed through mucous membranes, um, either in the vaginal walls or in the anal walls usually. Uh, It gets to your bloodstream and then that's where it starts kind of doing its work. So what HIV is trying to do is what any virus is trying to do make as many copies of itself as possible so what it will do is it will get into cells in your bloodstream called cd4 cells those are part of your immune system Uh, they help the immune system to identify the presence of infections it will go inside the cd4 cell and that's kind of where it lives and it will change the dna of the cd4 cell Um, it's quite clever the way it does it And then it will start firing off copies of itself. So it will start reproducing. And they go out into the bloodstream and they find other CD4 cells. And eventually it will destroy the CD4 cell from the inside. And that's why a virus that affects the immune system. So it's destroying those cells from the inside.
1: And it lowers the defenses.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the point that you acquire HIV between about nine days and six weeks after that point, what will happen is your body will basically recognize the Presence of these cells, they'll reach your lymph nodes. Your body will be like, "Hey, there's something going on here. I need to, the immune system will start to respond, start to go into action, and it starts producing antibodies. Um, and at that point, you might have what's known as seroconversion illness. So between nine days and six weeks after transmission of HIV, you might start to get just general cold and flu symptoms, maybe a fever, maybe a headache. A lot of people don't get any symptoms. Some people get a rash, and that's quite telltale, like a purple rash on their chest. But again it's it's important to remember that most people won't get any symptoms or if you do get symptoms you you'll just think you have cold or flu like you won't be able to tell the difference
1: and i know some people who have health anxiety they'll be thinking i've got a cold and a flu i've got hiv yeah yeah (laughs) yeah
0: so then again you know the important thing is don't try and diagnose yourself with symptoms go get a test just to be sure
1: don't do webmd
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So at that point, uh, you might have a seroconversion illness, you might not notice anything. But what is happening is your body is mounting this response. And what people don't realize all the time is your body's actually quite good at doing that for HIV. So it starts to produce antibodies, lots and lots of them. That's one of the things that we're testing for as well. And it will start to get some control over the virus. So where the HIV is circulating in your blood, your antibodies that your body's producing will start to reduce that level. So the level of HIV in your blood starts to go down quite quickly. The level of antibodies is going up. That's why we do duo testing, because you're looking for both of those things. So one will be high at one point and one will be high at another point. And that way, if we're testing for both, we'll be able to pick it up sooner.
1: So it's like an opposite correlation of what's happening. Yeah, Exactly,
0: exactly. So then your body's got HIV under relatively good control, like your immune system's doing its job. The problem is HIV is hiding out inside the immune system, destroying it from the inside. So over a period of time after that point usually seven to ten years, it's reducing the amount of CD4 cells in your body. Your body uh, finds it harder then to identify and start to attack other pathogens, like uh, viruses, bacteria, stuff like that. So that's when, um, you know, before HIV treatment and before we got this modern medicine, people would start to develop what's known as AIDS-related illnesses. And those will be things like certain types of cancer, certain types of pneumonia, tuberculosis. These are things that maybe your body would be able to fight off if it had a fully functioning immune system, but because HIV has weakened the immune system over a period of time, they can take hold and they can be deadly. So that's kind of the whole life cycle of HIV. What we need to do is intervene quite early in that process and get someone onto treatment. And what that will do is, it will reduce the amount of HIV in your blood to what's known as undetectable levels for the vast majority of people. And if you have an undetectable amount of HIV in your bloodstream because it's been controlled by medication, that means two things. HIV is no longer attacking your immune system. You can live a long and healthy life. You'll have a normal life expectancy. But also, you cannot pass HIV on to your sexual partners. And that's really important for people to be aware of. If you get on to treatment for HIV, um, that's the thing that's going to help us stop transmission.
1: Do you think as well, when we kind of established it was a HIV virus, people would associate the worst risks of AIDS and these illnesses you would get with HIV worse for stigma because you're almost associating the end thing that is preventable with the thing that starts at the beginning. Yeah. You know, I think when people think HIV, they think of all the pictures they're shown in sexual health classes or things they've seen in the media. but
0: Yeah, it's something that we... so. Somebody developing AIDS related illnesses is something in the modern world that we can prevent. It still happens. So, around 700,000 people around the world every year die of AIDS related illnesses. So, is that, that is.
1: Not in the UK, that's globally. That's
0: globally, yeah. Um, in the UK, um, that number is not zero, but it's very small. So, um, if somebody is either diagnosed very late with HIV or they don't get a diagnosis and they develop you know very serious complications or in some rare cases if somebody stops taking their medication and then they get you know one of these illnesses they can still die of what is an AIDS related illness like that is a possible thing that that can happen and that's something that we really need to act to prevent because it's totally preventable those deaths are totally preventable yeah Um, and even on a global scale like the the fact that there are still that number of deaths from AIDS related illnesses is really shocking and scandalous like that's something that we have the power to stop
1: and as well you don't have to go into a sexual health clinic to test you can get kits at home through shl i think yeah in london
0: shl.uk um in pretty much every almost every borough in london you can get a a test kit sent home they're Um,
1: working on putting in outer boroughs now i think as well
0: yep it's slightly complicated because there are different services available in different parts of the country and that's something that we need to kind of work on and make sure that we have Like equitable access to sexual health services everywhere.
1: It's almost more of a political thing because the people who do different boroughs is like politicians giving their buddies the company to go and do it and say, okay, we'll give him the commission to go and do
0: it. I think it's it's more about the fact that there are lots of different people responsible for commissioning sexual health services. Like it's really complicated. Mm. So, I mean, I don't want to get into loads of detail, but if you're in England and it's National HIV Testing Week, you can get a test kit posted to your house wherever you are. Mm. Um, and, but that's for like a few weeks of the year. And that is, you know, full disclosure, uh, it's provided by HIV Brent in England, which is a uh, service run by the Terrence Higgins Trust. Mm. Uh, but that's, the, you know, one week, or actually it lasts for a few weeks, but we, we kind of call it one week a year. And that's everywhere in England. If you're in Wales, there is a national postal testing kit service. So you can get HIV, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis like uh, all those types of tests in one test kit posted to your home anywhere in Wales. Yeah. Um, In Scotland it's a little bit more complicated so there's one place that you can go to get a postal HIV testing kit and then depending on where you are you can get kind of testing kits for other STIs If you're in London, you mentioned SHL, so they will provide testing kits all over London and for everything that you would want to test for um, at home but then in different parts of the country it varies depending on what your local authority is commissioning or uh, what like free services are available through charities and other organizations so it's a bit complicated the best way to find out is to go to our website the turns against trust website tht.org.uk we've got a test finder and it will find you a free hiv test anywhere in in the uk and depending on where you live
1: it's almost more important to reach out to those rural areas because you know i think people who live in rural areas at least my family like the city it's horrible why would anyone want to live in a city but also you kind of get bombarded with advertisements information and you kind of have access to all of this stuff But in rural areas you know sometimes things can feel backwards in a generation and they don't really speak about things they don't have access to certain information and they might not have access to the postal thing. So I think what's important about your work as well is that you do outreach to loads of different areas.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of organisations, HIV organisations up and down the country in different local areas who do lots of great outreach services and try to get those testing and that um, support to as many people as possible. And particularly if the services aren't great in finding them one thing just to say about postal testing kits there's two types not to get too technical but there's a self test which is basically a bit like the test that we were doing for covid at home so you get a sample of blood and you will get your own result within 10 to 15 minutes so it will tell you you know if it's reactive to the presence of hiv the other type of kit is the self sampling kit so you need to put a sample into a box and post it and then they'll test it at you know where they receive it so those are the two different types of postal testing kit uh, self test and self sampling test You can get a test and you'll get a rapid test usually at a GUM clinic or sexual health clinic. Mm -hmm. GPs can also do testing and they've got a couple of different ways they can do it. So they can either do a rapid test or they'll take blood from your arm and send it to the lab if they're doing like lots of different types of tests. Those tests where you have blood taken from the arm and sent to the lab are conclusive more sooner than rapid test kits. So you'll get conclusive result 45 days after a risk has taken place.
1: So it's really good if you have someone with quite high anxiety about being exposed, you can go and get a rapid test.
0: Yeah. Or if the, if the timeline, if you're thinking about, oh, I wonder about that thing that, you know, or like sex I had, I don't know, a couple of months ago, uh, I want to be absolutely sure I need to get that type of test and that will tell me right now. Uh, without me having to wait till the 90-day point. The other thing to remember is any type of HIV test will pick up more than 90% of infections within the first 28 days. So that's a month after something happened is a good time to test. It'll give you a really good indication. It just won't be completely conclusive. And
1: I think with the NHS, um, from what I know, is if you think you have been exposed... To any STD, you can obviously say that to the person who is taking your appointment and they will immediately move you up if you think you've had definite exposure. Because people who are just going for testing in terms of routine, not high priority, the people who obviously think, okay, I've been exposed, that's more high priority.
0: Yeah, yeah, they do it on a kind of a risk basis. So if you're yeah. there for like a regular checkup, um, we, we want to encourage as many people as possible if you're sexually active to test on a regular basis for everything that's the best of looking after your kind of sexual health. Um, but if you have symptoms or you think I've definitely been exposed to an STI, that's an important thing to contact your local sexual health service about. Mm-hmm. They will, yeah, they will prioritize an appointment for you. How at
1: risk are women?
0: Well, okay, <laughs> so... Um, uh, we can talk about HIV and STIs. Well,
1: through HIV, but sure. Let's let's okay. include the other ones.
0: <laughs> so, um, if you look globally, um, this is the thing that surprises a lot of people. There are more women than men living with HIV. So 53% of people around the world who are living with HIV are women.
1: And um, that's subsidised in Africa, would I say? Yeah, so okay.
0: the, um, there are about 39 million people around the world living with HIV. More than 20 million of those are living in Eastern and Southern Africa. And the people who are most at risk of acquiring HIV today are women and girls aged 15 to 24 living in Eastern and Southern Africa. There are 15,000 new diagnoses a week of women and girls mm-hmm. aged 15 to 24 in Eastern and Southern Africa. So it is a condition that you know affects women and disproportionately affects women, especially in other parts of the world. In the UK, about a third of people living with HIV are women. That's, again, when we ask people how many, you know, what what proportion of people do you think are li- are women, they won't guess right. They'll normally say it's it's very small, but in the UK it's about a third.
1: For women sometimes have an easier time of being bisexual or trying both kind of genders. I do think they probably get a bit of stigma of, oh, look, it's the two lesbians going to join it. You know, they, they get a bit of that. But with men, I think where they suffer a little bit more in terms of trying with different sexualities is they will get more of a stigma of, oh, that's not masculine. And we're getting away from it, which is good. But obviously, when you say that, my mind goes to men who, maybe because they've not been allowed to explore their sexuality, which is almost um, a gay topic of acceptance, then that kind of jumps to that and the disease, and they're not allowed to explore that, so they'll feel more shame around sexual health, and it's almost like a domino effect and stuff. Mm.
0: Intersecting levels of shame and stigma and stuff that that can build up, and that can mean that somebody is less likely to engage in a service. And we we really need to to remedy that and to to get people to understand, you know, having sex is a perfectly natural thing to do. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody does it. It's something and that to we explore. want people. Yeah, yeah, and to explore your own sexual and work out what you know, what you enjoy, what what, what what gives you pleasure, what you're comfortable with, where your boundaries are. That's something that really should be encouraged and celebrated. Um, you know, we as an organization, we're, we're quite sex positive. So we'll pretty much never put out a, a message that tells people not to have sex to protect themselves from STIs. We want people to have, you know, enjoyable, full, healthy sex lives. Um, but just be aware of the risks and to look after themselves and test and, and uh, use prevention methods.
1: It's like telling someone don't click on the big red button or like telling a teenager never have sex. So yeah, it's
0: just not going to work. And, you know, you, you mentioned kind of men who have sex with men in a kind of a broad category. Um, One thing that I've learned in the process of doing this job, particularly in volunteering on our helpline for the last few years, we talk in the sexual health kind of area about gay and bisexual men and other men who have sex with men. And sometimes people are like, what do you mean other men who have sex with men? And it is a phenomenon that happens out there in the world. Somebody who's a man who is heterosexual might have sex with another man. That doesn't make them gay or bisexual. You know, they would identify themselves as heterosexual. It might just be something they do either to try it one time or because it's convenient or for economic reasons or, you know, there's lots of different reasons why somebody might uh, do that. Um, But that doesn't make them gay or bisexual.
1: In the strip club, I think I've come across, I just tried to count about six men who've done that. And I think that's through um, what you would call swinging, trying different things, go to sexual parties. But it's common, you know. Uh, people just want to try it just as like oh i went and kissed a girl last night of course you know it's human you want to try but it's interesting in aids the unheard tapes which is a really great documentary on bbc if anyone's not listened to it but a man speaks about how back then in the 80s so much of why you know the gay community were almost rampant in terms of so much sex was happening is almost because of the marginalization so he goes into how everything did become sex 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 heaven and all of this stuff especially in london because people were marginalizing them putting them down and they were saying well no like i want to love who i want to love and i want to like fuck fuck sorry that's a really (laughs) strong word fuck who i want to fuck and i want to you know if i want to do it and have do all the things that straight people do i'm gonna do it you know with my chest out i'm proud yeah. and and that's a really great sentiment you should but also what is the most heartbreaking thing is that this virus was happening yeah so obviously that's not gonna help
0: if you look at um like the history of lgbt plus people particularly in in like Europe and North America there's this like kind of brief shining period in England like homosexuality was decriminalized I think in 1967 I'm originally from Ireland it wasn't decriminalized till 1993 but it became something that was not as taboo I mean it was still taboo there was still a lot of stigma and and, you know societal shame around it but things started to improve you know gay and bisexual men started finding each other and you got this point where they're like I'm gonna cast off all of this shame and stigma and I'm gonna be who I am and you know have the kind of sex that I want and that was very liberating so like there's lots of kind of things in the 1970s and early 1980s where people are you know sexually liberated for the first time in a while and this is in the background as well of women being sexually liberated Mm. from like the old kind of like 1950s
1: and the birth of the pill yeah. yeah, the
0: contraceptive comp- comp- pill goes, goes hand in hand with that But also like the 60s where you know, Women kind of stood up and said like, We're not going to take this anymore you know, We are sexual beings Who have the right to have the kind of sex life that we want um, And all of this is kind of going hand in hand But then you get this hammer blow In the early 1980s of people starting to die yeah. um, and Particularly uh, gay men in the early days And that sort of brings All of that fear And, and shame and stigma Back And it's made much worse in the 1980s by the media, the media in the UK in particular, the newspapers, like the stories that they were putting out about gay men in the 1980s were like horrific. And again, you've got this huge kind of societal fear that's building up around this and and like almost like monsterization of people. And that's what leads to Section 28, right? In in 1988, you get um, Section 28 of the Local Government Act or whatever, which prohibits the um, I think the exact wording is something like the teaching of homosexual relationships as a pretended family unit. I think that was the thing in schools in uh, which are controlled by local authorities so you 've so got it's like
1: this implication of they don 't want to depict it as this is normal
0: yeah yeah they, w- they want it to seem abnormal to be marginalized, in many cases to be demonized, and it, you know the the pride movement which had existed since at least the 1970s mm-hmm. um, kind of kicked into high gear at that point because people were dying of AIDS and it didn't seem like anybody was really helping or caring. And legislation was being brought in that was, you know, pushing things backwards. Some of the advances that were made were, you know, it seemed like they were going to be rolled back. And I, you know, not to be dramatic about it, but I kind of see the same noises happening today, particularly in the political area. So um, there's this marginalization and demonization of trans people in particular mm. that's going on in the in the media and in government and they're talking about changing the the way that we teach relationships and sex education in schools to make it you know less trans inclusive or to not discuss gender identity and that just feels like the same playbook from the 1980s recycled it feels very disheartening because we've made so much pro- progress that like it might be rolled back
1: yeah i think as well dialogue is necessary to hear different opinions because part of bringing someone over to maybe your opinion that sounds bad bring someone over <laughs> to your opinion but kind of trying to see eye to eye and like see the human side is listening to people who don't have the same opinions as you
0: you know we're just like acknowledging the existence of people who are different yeah um like when I was in school felt like I was this alien who'd been like beamed in from somewhere else like I didn't fit in I was never talked about like there was no, this wasn't normal it wasn't it wasn't taught about it was you know and so you get that feeling of I already feel isolation because I'm different to other people but it's compounded by the fact that it's not being talked about it's not being taught about and that sort of thing and that's you know changed over time
1: as well until you move away I suppose and start your own life you're not allowed to access a part of life that brings so much joy
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can't express yourself or be the kind of person that you want to be. If you grew up in the 1980s or before as a a gay person or like a queer person in general, you have this weight that kind of weighs down on you that, you know, it's almost hardwired into you that you're not normal and that's a bad thing and that, you know, therefore you're a bad person or you shouldn't be allowed to do certain things it adds this kind of moral societal moral level a lot of it comes from religion and other places that kind of um tries to suppress who people are and i think you know i could talk from a personal perspective like i've come a long way from there and i realize that you know things are very different but i still have to acknowledge that that's kind of hardwired into me and i have to kind of fight against that conditioning like all the time
1: it's interesting because obviously men cannot create children together biologically but when they look at women the thing that they're going to shove onto them is the virtue and the virginity and the chastity and you know you, you what you have is so precious and you do you have more expensive sex cells and you should probably think about who you create them with but obviously with men they don't have that shame to put on them because it's too two blokes but what they're going to do instead is they're going to use something else and they're going to say oh well this is not the definition of masculinity this is not what creation decided so we're going to bash you over the head with a bible and make you feel that our side is the side to believe and it's not it's not the side of science it's not the side of logic it's not the side of reason as well
0: no absolutely you know queer people across the lgbtq plus spectrum exist and have for forever pretty much Um, And it's important to kind of recognize that. And this idea of, um, I think a lot of what's happening in in kind of, especially with young people, but where people are looking at gender in different ways, you know, people are talking about their gender identity differently. Um, I think that's a really positive, healthy thing, because it starts to cast off those gender norms that society expects you to have like women have to be a certain way and men have to be a certain way and it's like no um we're just people you should be able to express your so as a woman you should be able to express your masculinity as a man you should be able to express your femininity it shouldn't be something that's like stigmatized or shamed
1: i think i come from the school of thought like i don't really think about it too much when i'm just i don't know i suppose i'm a woman and i'm quite forthright i don't think i'm being masculine i just think i'm being forthright do you know what I mean? Uh, people sometimes do want to label things and some people don't. Like, yeah. it's weird. You both agree on the same things, but you have very different ways of doing it. It's just finding out the right balance, almost, yeah. you know?
0: But it's it's, it's kind of like, don't, don't squash somebody's expression just because you think it doesn't fit into some kind of gender norm. Because, like, you know, it's, I don't know, it, it kind of i think it 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 dampens creativity and And when you when you if you bring back to kind of like sexual health as well Mm. and reproductive health that um you know you were talking about the you know the contraceptive pill becoming available and women becoming more sexually liberated and all that kind of stuff and that is a journey i think that we're still on and still needs to be um pushed forward but society has this and and what we're trying to do like in our organization as well is make sure that um the system doesn't reinforce this and sometimes it does but this expectation that everything to do with sexual and reproductive health particularly in heterosexual relationships is the responsibility of women yeah and i i have no time for that like men need to step up and take responsibility for their own sexual health and to protect others as well put on your
1: own condoms
0: exactly know how to protect yourself be aware of condoms be aware of prep be aware of you know the things that you need to do if you want to avoid pregnancy if you want to avoid stis or Um, know what to do you know test yourself on a regular basis and that sort of thing don't rely on somebody else to look after your sexual health you know sometimes that you have to kind of fight against the system that starts to reinforce that so recently for example we've had um, so there was a chlamydia testing program that was for young people under 25 16 to 25 year olds mainly
1: am i not young person anymore after i turn 25
0: well it depends on who you ask and it depends on which service you're accessing Mm. but chlamydia (laughs) testing um was particularly aimed at people 16 to 25 and free condoms are like really aimed at young people as well Uh, and what happened a, a few years ago is they decided that because the worst effects of chlamydia affected women that they would only focus the chlamydia testing program on women And I think that was a mistake because it just reinforces that idea that women are responsible for everybody else's sexual health.
1: I think as well, data would be more conclusive of men have more casual sex. And I don't mean that in a way of women don't, but they probably have a lot and it's a lot on both sides. But men's DNA code is written to reproduce even if I, I'd imagine even if your sexuality isn't for women it's almost like in the hormones I would say uh, casual sex lends itself more to like a masculine hormonal profile from the terms of sex not what you identify as um, so for them to like base it off females is just bizarre
0: it is, it is a bit I mean I don't I think it's I understand why they're doing it but I think it's the wrong message
1: they're not looking. They're looking at the end thing. They're not looking at the before yeah. thing.
0: Yeah, they're not, they're not. They're looking at the um, the result of trying to reduce the most harm of chlamydia that you can in mm. the most effective and cost-effective way that you can. But they're not looking at the overall message of like what that so, tells yeah. people yeah. about you know responsibility when it comes to sexual health.
1: With the gender identity stuff, it's interesting because. I left school and I think we just got this beginning of them probably actually putting it more into school and now we're getting to the point where they're like, ooh, what, what are we putting into schools and stuff? But we were told the sex is what you're born with. So, you know, your genitalia and then the gender is what you identify with. Of course, people can go from different sexes to different sexes. I know we have grey areas in terms of like sport and very different things, but people use sport as the leading example of why people can't be transgender, which is ridiculous. That's one component of society. Should it be discussed? Probably. But you can't use the one percentage to judge a whole populace of people, you know? It just doesn't seem very fair.
0: Rhetoric in the media around this has become so inflamed and toxic and it's creating so much polarisation.
1: Because it gets so many clicks.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: The people writing it probably don't even care. They're probably like I don't really give a shit but because it creates so much volume that's why they care because it pushes sales it pushes numbers it makes money
0: and the, the problem is it creates real harms um, particularly for the mental health of people who are you know, gender diverse or looking at their gender in a different way it's not ultimately helpful and yeah i find it really disheartening because like i look back at the kind of things that people were saying in the 1980s about gay men in particular Mm. um you know lesbians as well um but gay men in particular and i'm like it's just the same recycled fear and ignorance and people people don't understand it very well like even even that kind of what you might have been taught in school about basic biology like you know sex is binary and gender is about expression even that is not I- enough in terms of like the reality because intersex people exist right people who don't biologically express as you know directly male or directly female that's would, a thing that happens it's very like it's uncommon would but they the exist. correct
1: word be hermaphrodite or incorrect word
0: um i think that is a kind of an outdated term i'm sorry um, for, for somebody who uh maybe has um you know different uh like genital or sex characteristics that you know might be both male and female um i think intersex people are a bit more complicated there's there's more variations of the type of of um uh, intersex people both in terms of like their chromosomes or how um or like you know f- physically how they appear or their genitalia or stuff like that yeah. so the, there's you know there's, there's kind of complications, um, involved, but then also like even coming down to things like hormones and stuff like that, like people are on a, on a spectrum and, you know, different people, you know, look or express themselves in different ways. And I think that's like, I think that's really interesting. And I think it's, it's something that we should kind of study more and talk about more rather than kind of saying, no, 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 that's too scary. It, it's binary. It's one or the other. And that's it. And we're not having a more, any more discussion about it, which is like probably like the old fashioned, attitude of of um at least education and stuff like that i I think a lot of things have changed and that's moved on quite a bit the media is whipping up this this fear
1: fear mongering
0: yeah fear mongering again
1: in every society you get a ridiculous one percent and they're using the ridiculous one percent of every society liberals use the ridiculous conservative one percent and we use well they do have a lot of ridicule but like maybe 30 percent. but sorry you were saying
0: yeah no i mean it's um people kind of start to move to the extremes and what you find is a lot of people who maybe are well-intentioned but just misinformed who are in in the middle ground somewhere who have formed a really negative opinion of trans people having never met any yeah you know what i mean because of what they're told in the media and all of this kind of like demonization There's like so many media stories that are really negative about trans people and their motivations and intentions and stuff like that. And it creates this really, really toxic environment. I have um, lots of people in our organization who are trans or non-binary, you know, and they are... Like you really feel it. Like they're they're they feel like they're constantly under attack. Um I, I go to um drug and alcohol recovery meetings, um, like queer ones based in London, and there are lots of trans people in those meetings um who are in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. And, you know, when I hear them talk, they're talking about like not just all of these stories are out there and it's having a big impact on my mental health, but like I'm being attacked physically on the street every day because of, you know, what's going on. And I don't think people really realize the harm that's being caused by some of these things.
1: And it's also like um, when you look at depictions of uh, what people do in the media. So sometimes you get these stories of, um, for example, I'm going to use "man saves dog from river" or something like that. If you're a woman, well, sometimes, like especially if you're trans or in the community. They'll often label you by your gender identity before anything else. You're not another person before your gender identity. I mean, your gender identity is who you are, but your other things before that as well. And you'd think human people could connect over that. But again, it's using people's gender identity to form clickbait, to sensationalize, mm-hmm. to monetize. It's like you want the rhythm and the money of everything, but you don't want the blues and the pain of everything because you're not going through
0: that. I'll give you another example of that kind of... um, where it relates to sexual health and HIV in the media. Um, It's really easy if you uh, search online to find stories that go... They'll usually be in local newspapers... And they all go the same way. So it's like somebody who's very innocent, usually a child, is being tested for HIV because they found uh, a needle in a public place and they pricked themselves. And so like m- maybe a drug user has discarded a needle and somebody has scratched or pricked themselves with that needle. The headline will be all about the fear. They're basically saying like the parents are facing their worst nightmare waiting for the result of an HIV test on a young child. And like obviously that's a like horrendous thing for for a parent to go through. But what the media doesn't do is then come back and tell you that the child tested negative because that's what always happens in these cases. So they've they've created this huge amount of fear about, you know, uh, something that people might find in a public place. Yeah. But they haven't told you that there has never been a transmission of HIV in the UK from somebody finding a needle in a public place. Yeah. But there are stories all the time.
1: The most scandalous thing is someone's leaving a needle about which isn't safe. No, I mean, and yeah. you know,
0: you could get tetanus, you could get hepatitis, like that's actually something that, so hepatitis B and C are bloodborne viruses, a bit like HIV, but they survive much better outside the human body, so they can survive for a long time with the wrong temperature, exposed to the air, to the light, and could be passed on. So, uh, you know, I talked earlier on about uh, needle stick injuries in the NHS, and that we haven't had one that's led to an HIV transmission in like 24 years. It does occasionally happen with hepatitis, so, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there are good reasons why, if you do scratch yourself with something whether it's a needle or not in a public place that you just get it checked out um because you might need to test for hepatitis or tetanus or something like that
1: but the hiv is what they attach isn't it yeah
0: the, that's the one that everybody fears everyone has this huge amount of fear around hiv so that's the one that makes the news even though that's not the one that people are going to get you know we know that from the from the statistics
1: the kind of weaponization around the stigma of hiv with people's mental health what kind of impacts do you see and why is it so avoidable
0: we can talk about two things in that area so first is like the mental health of people living with hiv Mm. and we've got lots of survey data and stuff around that to show that people living with hiv are much more likely to experience depression anxiety the other common mental health issues largely as a result of the stigma associated with hiv even
1: today today's society yeah absolutely
0: yeah Um, There are lots of people who have never shared their HIV status with anybody who's not their HIV doctor, for example, like that happens. People are still denied service illegally because they're living with HIV in some places. And that might be either in a a healthcare setting, which is something that we're really trying to get across to people that is not okay, Uh, But also in things like beauty parlours, tattooists, lots of other places where they haven't got the most up to date information about HIV and they don't know the risks.
1: Can someone um, take that to court?
0: Yes. I mean, like, ideally, you wouldn't want to have to take it all the way to court. But um, our colleagues over at the National AIDS Trust have a discrimination advice service. Um, If you uh, Google National AIDS Trust um, and discrimination, you'll find that. And they're able to take on individual cases where, like, if somebody, like, complains to the people who are providing the service and says, like, this isn't right and they don't get, like, a satisfactory response, you could go to the National AIDS Trust discrimination service um, and they will, uh, you know, open a case take on the case for you talk to the, the people involved you know, give them the information that they need pro um, bono so I I I you can't don't know. <laughs> I can't I can't speak directly to uh, I know that that discrimination advice service currently for the National AIDS Justice is funded by the National Lottery Community Fund mm. so they have uh, funding to be able to deliver it um, I don't know how long that funding lasts or whether they have to support that with you know donations that they receive and that sort of thing because that's usually um, the way that that happens but that service will be provided to that individual for free and you can
1: always go to no win no fee as well um, I always think with certain things that you might not have money for to do legally. I recently got knocked off a bike and I, it's not the same thing, but I got a no win no fee and uh, I got a nice chunk of money from it. So, yeah.
0: I mean, for me, like I had a situation where um about a year ago, um my partner took me to a really nice hotel, like a spa hotel for a weekend and we booked in for like some treatments. I was getting a massage. They had a form that you fill out beforehand and it asks you about lots of medical conditions. And one of the tick boxes was HIV. And I was like,
1: why is this on the form? We're not sharing drugs. Didn't really. <laughs> didn't really I'm
0: like, I'm not going to have sex with this, but it's not that kind of, you know, So, like some places you go to, maybe that service is an offer, but this wasn't an offer there. It's not one that I would have yeah. uh, been looking for at that time. Uh, but, you know, it had this question. So I, was, I ticked the box because I was like, you know, this is the area I work in, I should be able to...
1: Did your mind automatically think that they offered happy endings because of this?
0: No, I, w- what I thought was they don't know how HIV is transmitted. Okay, <laughs> um, so you
1: you kind of almost knew the more sadder side before, like, oh, it's a... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, and I was like, I don't know what they're going to do with this information now that I've ticked it on the forum. Um, so I was kind of curious, but I was also like, this was, you know, it was a weekend away, it was my day off, I didn't want to have to do, like, work stuff. Um, but, um in the end uh, you know they they asked what medication I was on as well and I wrote down all the medications that I'm on for HIV and um, uh, you know I got a massage it was like a back massage Uh, but the person wore gloves like surgical gloves for the massage
1: and they weren't for your partner or no No, so my
0: partner is HIV negative we've been together for 16 years he remains HIV negative and didn't check the box on the forum he got a different treatment he was getting a facial or something they didn't wear gloves for him um now there are lots of reasons why you might wear gloves um like if you're allergic to some of the massage oils or whatever else but i immediately assumed it was because i ticked hiv on the forum and because they didn't know how hiv was transmitted Mm. um so what i did after that um you know i left it a couple of weeks and then i wrote them a letter and i said look this was my experience this is how i felt having experience this and you know i kind of said we have a service where we can come and like teach you about hiv transmission and Mm. talk to you about what stigma feels like and also let you know that um, if you're collecting people's personal medical information under like the law gdpr data protection all that kind of stuff you have to have a really good reason you need to inform people what you're going to do with that information how long you're going to store it what it's going to be used for Um, stuff like that so I'm like you've got to be really careful when you're collecting people's medical information that you've got a good reason to do it and in my opinion they didn't have a good reason to know about my HIV status Um, and that would be even if I was getting like a manicure and they were cutting my nails and they had the potential like to cut my finger or whatever that's not going to lead to HIV transmission like you know I went through all the possible scenarios in my head and I was like there's no good reason for them to know this I even went I did some research I went into the like uh, old academic information and um, there was one Many, many years ago, there was a treatment for HIV that's no longer used that could cause lactic acidosis, which is a buildup of lactic acid in the, in the muscles. And if you massage someone who had lactic acidosis, you could cause issues. Mm. Um, and I was like, that would be a legitimate reason why you want to know if that person is on that particular medication. Um, so that's why maybe those forms were designed that way. So I was giving them better for the benefit of the doubt. I was kind of saying, like, look, here's a legitimate reason why you might collect that information. But nobody's on that HIV medication for the last 15 years. Yeah. And you don't have a good reason to do it now. So, you know, I had this conversation with them. They were actually really good about it. They, we had a, a, a couple of chats um, on the phone and um, they've now taken HIV off their form. They're not asking that question anymore because they know that it's not relevant um, and we've gone through why it's not relevant.
1: I feel because you work in the space you work and I know you said you didn't want to kind of go into work mode. You almost have that knowledge because you're empowered to know it, and you you, you live in this world where you can access the information. Someone with HIV who, you know, isn't working for the Terrence Higgins Trust and stuff, they're not going to know that. They're going to just feel the stigma and the shame. They're not going to, you know, almost have the confidence to go and say that. Yeah, no, that's true. They might Um, not even know the information.
0: And in that kind of scenario, a lot of people would have just either not ticked on the forum, just be like, this is my personal information. I'm not going to tell you I'm living with HIV. Or they would have just, you know, been quiet about it, maybe felt a bit bad about it because they've experienced kind of stigma that they shouldn't have mm. but just kind of moved on and I kind of did consider at the time because I'm, I'm quite socially anxious like I don't like confrontation in particular so I wasn't going to say anything in the in the moment I um, <laughs> but I was but yeah but that's like kind of not what I was but partly because I'm doing this job mm. I, I kind of felt like a responsibility because like, yeah. if I don't challenge this who's going to so I kind of felt like almost obligated to do something about it but I kind of thought I got some you know, I spoke to some people, I uh, got some advice and I was like, OK, this is something I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it in a way that kind of looks after my own mental health as well, because I don't want to be like really confrontational about it.
1: If we like maybe go to more towards like the education, as we were speaking earlier, what do you think people could do more successfully to stop these situations from happening? So teaching people in school actually about transmission of HIV. Yeah. Um ideas thoughts I, th- I
0: think that's really important so the the service that we run positive voices um, we last year from the year up to April we did 279 talks to just over 20,000 people and about half of those were in schools colleges universities uh, young people in education and it's actually a real privilege to go and speak to young people about these things because a lot of them don't know a lot about HIV they haven't had cause to know about HIV what I find with younger people is they don't tend to have the same level of fear that people of my generation and older generations would have around HIV because they haven't experienced that like tombstone advert, people dying, you know, not in the UK.
1: Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Again, like transmission rates have been coming down and are quite low. And people, even if they had people in their family living with HIV, they probably wouldn't be talking about it because of the stigma. So most people don't know. Most people probably know someone living with HIV, but most people don't know that they know someone living with HIV, if you know what I mean. So for all of those reasons, I find young people a lot more curious and open-minded and they ask really great questions when you're talking about HIV and sexual health like it's uh, it's it's given me a lot of hope for the future
1: that goal you said it it gives you more trust that you'll reach the goal
0: yeah yeah absolutely some of the people that we're speaking to now who are you know 13 14 15 when they're in their 20s they might not have to worry about HIV anymore if we're successful like it won't be it won't be circulating anymore in the UK um mm. and that, that you know that's amazing uh, to think that we can achieve that Um, if we work together and if we kind of um, get rid of all the stigma.
1: And it's almost kind of like removing the residue of um, Section 28 from what happened before.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the education that we give the talks that we do are all inclusive we talk about different types of sex that people might have and that might lead to transmission risk Um, we do it in a kind of factual non-judgmental way because you know these things exist and people need to know about them Mm -hmm. Um, and um, you know people are genuinely curious one thing that you always get a little bit surprised depending on the audience like people are sometimes they put things into boxes So when you talk to people about, um, you know, most HIV transmissions come from vaginal and anal sex and people immediately think, oh, anal sex is something that only happens between two men. And you have to kind of remind them that like, no, other people have anal sex, too. Um, (laughs) You know, it happens a lot. And it's happening a lot among young people as well. From what we can see, young heterosexual people are having more anal sex than, you know, people would have in previous generations. Um, And they're not thinking about contraception. So they need to be aware of. HIV and STI risk Um,
1: Well, There's a huge transmission In both gonorrhea and chlamydia That is going up and up and up Because more people are having casual sex So obviously where there's HIV That will probably like also go as well If if that's there in the mix It makes sense like of why Rates are going up and stuff
0: So rates of um, chlamydia, gonorrhea and syphilis Are going up Um, That's a phenomenon that's happening across Europe um, and syphilis. Syphilis, yeah. Yeah. Um, increasing quite a lot. Now, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis are all treatable. It's becoming slightly hard to treat some of them. So, um, super
1: gonorrhea. I spoke to Dr. Frankie about it, and she said it basically it's treatable, but because it's like a mutation, um, no, sorry, it's the super chlamydia. Um, not the super gonorrhea, you can get rid of the super gonorrhea, but the super chlamydia, you can't get rid of. But it's similar, like you can still have sex with people and be on medication. It's just that you're not going to necessarily get rid of the virus within you. But that's scary though, no? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, we we need to get people, you know, testing on a regular basis, getting treated. So we've had PrEP for HIV for quite a while. If we can get people onto PrEP, that will stop them from acquiring HIV there's also uh, now, it's known as doxypep, but it's basically, uh, a lot of people are, are starting to do this. There's not a huge amount of um, like really robust scientific data on it yet. Some of it's starting to come in now, but it's basically people who are taking doxycycline, which is a, a, a antibiotic, after they have sex in order to reduce the risk of acquiring gonorrhea and chlamydia. And for a long time, the medical establishment was like, we really shouldn't be doing this because we're, we're potentially creating the ideal situations for these things to become resistant. That was a bit of an overreaction, I think, at, at, at first. And the data that's coming in now is showing us that actually it could be quite effective. So in the near future, you might see that being recommended as a way to proactively stop acquisition of gonorrhea and chlamydia. Yeah, um, That's a possibility. That's a, that's quite interesting and, and new. It is important to say that rates of HIV are going down, yeah, going sorry. down quite a lot. And There's also an elimination strategy for hepatitis, Um, so hepatitis C in particular. That is transmitted from blood-to-blood contact, Um, so it's not typically transmitted through sex, but it can be if there's blood involved in the sex. But, you know, it's something that people need to be aware of. Um, There's a lot more hepatitis C out there than there is HIV. That is treatable, it's curable you know, it takes a bit a bit of time and the right and the right amount of treatment, but people can be cleared of, of hepatitis C. Hepatitis B is a vaccination, so you can get vaccinated against hepatitis A and hepatitis B. Um, it's a good idea if you're particularly sexually active, if you work in the sex industry, to go and get a vaccination for hepatitis A and B. That will give you protection. You can also get your levels of HEP B immunity checked over time because sometimes you need to get a booster Hmm. um so i got the hep a and b vaccination years and years ago um i've had to have a booster of my hep b uh, more recently Uh, that might be to do with my hiv i'm not sure but important to get those things checked and also you can get um if you haven't had it before hpv vaccination um which is
1: but it doesn't necessarily prevent you from getting hpv because there's so many strains
0: there are there are lots of strains so i think there's at least uh, if i'm if i'm remembering correctly there are at least 23 strains of hpv i might be mixing it up with herpes um but there's lots of strains the vaccination protects you depending on which type of vaccination you get against like four or five of them but those are the ones that cause the most issues so the ones that cause cervical cancer and other types of cancer in both women and men um you can get a vaccination against and sometimes they will recommend that you get So you have to normally get three doses of HPV vaccine. Um, They'll normally recommend, even if you have a strain of HPV that they're vaccinated against, that you still get the vaccine because it could give some protection.
1: A few of my friends, because they go for the um, cervical screening, they're similar ages to me. So they have gone and had this jab in high school, but they still do um, have HPV because obviously... Um, people have sex, <laughs> but it's not the most serious type of HPV that they've probably contracted. And HPV is a very common, common. Th- is it seventy percent? I don't know if I can categorically say it's seventy percent. Young people
0: before we had vaccination, particularly vaccination of young people, they used to just basically say that if you are an adult and you've had sex, you probably have some strain of HPV.
1: And your HPV from what i understand as you leave you're kind of say you're having a lot of sex in your twenties and you leave but you settle down with someone it does migrate and it goes away over time
0: i think it this is where we're getting into an area that i don't know very well but i think Mm -hmm. it it will vary from person to person and from hpv strain to hpv strain and also what else is going on in your immune system and stuff like that but yeah um most of the forms of hpv that are out there we know generally don't cause big issues yeah um the, but the ones that do are the ones that we want to make sure that people are protecting themselves against um and it's the same with like some people get really worked up about herpes as yeah. a um you know as about and you know it's something that uh you know charities and stuff that focus specifically on herpes but again that's one of those things that like the majority of people adults in the uk have some form of herpes yeah um, you know if you get cold sores you have herpes um, yeah
1: <laughs> And it's just that kind of almost dispelling like of what it is and stuff. I want to move on to media depictions of what was happening back in the 80s with the HIV and AIDS crisis. It's a sin. Do you think that's a really good representation of what was happening and something that's actually almost positive?
0: So I really enjoyed it. It's a scene. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend that you watch it. I think it's available on the um, Channel 4 Uh, what I I still call it 4OD even though it hasn't been called out in years and I think it's on Netflix as well globally and it's based on real people so that's like an important thing to remember yeah I've met the family of one of the people who was depicted in this and I've also met the uh, real life Jill Um, okay so Jill is based on a real person and I remember watching it and thinking with the character Jill I'm like oh you know that's um nobody's that good nobody like nobody's that nice a person and then I was like oh no that's based on a real person and those are real events and that person is that really really nice amazing person Um, yeah and she's written a book as well uh Jill Nalder um which I have really great book and then there were some characters that are like composites of other characters and stuff but the things that they depict are things that are real and that happened in the 1980s including you know somebody being locked up in hospital and then you know they had to mount a legal challenge to get that person out of basically being locked up one of the things I really like about it is it's great drama so Russell T Davies is a great drama drama writer Mm -hmm. um and it it really kind of gets you invested in the characters which is you know which is awesome so and you you see kind of how the characters develop and stuff but it doesn't just show the misery because a lot of stuff when you look back at like depictions of, of AIDS in the 1980s it's all about All of the terrible things that were happening to people. And that's really important to portray. But this also shows the joy, which is what I really love about it. It's like, you know, people who are facing really, really difficult times and they're doing their best and they're having fun. uh, But they're also, you know, they've got the specter of this disease that's that's hanging over them. And it's of the time that it depicts. So it ends at a certain point. And, you know, they only got commissioned to write a certain number of episodes. So they didn't get to extend the story to the modern day or to the post 1996 era where yeah. you get to see treatment and people living really well with HIV.
1: It's not so much a sin anymore would be the <laughs> title.
0: <laughs> yeah I mean um, the writers and the cast were really good when they were promoting the show mm. about getting the message out about you know, you equals U, the fact that people living with HIV can't yeah. pass it on now, how HIV has changed and stuff. They became massive advocates for the work that organisations like ours do it was a really great phenomenon and it happened during you know the period of covid so it came out during lockdowns and stuff and it helped us to get a lot of messages across to people because people were you know looking at the topic for the first time maybe in a while
1: younger generation accessing the information as well especially
0: yeah absolutely but i think it was really important that we follow it up with all of those messages about the realities Mm -hmm. of hiv today because if all you learned was all of the stuff from the 1980s Um, and you didn't learn about the realities today, then I think we're doing young people a bit of a disservice.
1: But I think as well, where we were speaking about negative media depictions, it's important to have, for example, like these podcasts and, you know, It's a Sin, um, AIDS, The Untold Tapes. I know that's obviously kind of going back to, you know, the more harder times, but it's important to show that the positive side that the movement is bringing. I mean, Ollie Alexander's character at the end, I think there's a moment where he's having a face-to-face with his mum, and he's unfortunately contracted AIDS at this point and it's a matter of time before he dies. And he's kind of confessing on his deathbed about things. And I think one of the questions of might have been, what do you regret and stuff? And he's like, I wish I had more sex. <laughs> there's so many cocks, so many eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and you're kind of like, yeah, well, uh, of course, like, you know, across like whether you're gay whether you're straight however you want to identify your sexuality we all have sex we all participate in the sexual economy it's important we have positive spaces to access this information and know how to do something safely and if we do run into trouble what's the best course of action
0: yeah absolutely i mean it's really important that people are aware of the facts Mm. but also that they're able to have the type of, you know, consensual, pleasurable sex that um, makes them happy, that that they can enjoy.
1: I don't know how I feel about pleasure being taught in school. I I don't know how I feel about that. Because in one way, like, I can think about as a teenager and a teacher teaching me about sexual pleasure. I'm like, oh, I don't want to listen to this. But on the other Uh, hand, I wish they did teach me about it. I think,
0: uh, like in the curriculum there is a certain point where you can start to like with people in their older teens and stuff you can kind of introduce the topic mm. I don't think you want to labour the point too much or kind of like go, go into too much detail but I think you'd be doing a disservice to young people if you said people only ever have sex for procreation like yeah. in the ma- vast majority of cases they're doing it for pleasure right Yeah, <laughs> um, you know it, it's only a small minority of cases that they're doing it for procreation
1: if you're in a relationship with someone the sex you have is a big part of you know I suppose your mental health between each other and like the the attitude you have towards your sex is based off an activity you have between each other. And it's so important.
0: Again, like it's important for people to know that many relationships have that strong connection and and sexual component. Many other people have, you know, perfectly good uh, sex lives where they have a lot of casual sex and they don't get into Mm -hmm. kind of deep relationships. And that's also, you know, something to be aware of and not to be stigmatized. And then you've also got people who, for whatever reason, are, maybe they're asexual or whatever, but like sex is not important for them Mm -hmm. in a relationship. And that's also important to teach people about because once you start teaching about these things, you also have to teach about consent and boundaries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something that I think is being done much better now. Like it was, I don't think it was done at all before, (laughs) Um, but it's been done much better now with young people. But people my age and older don't understand consent and boundaries very well at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I would agree with that, yeah.
0: And, you know, not just respecting somebody else's boundaries, but understanding, you know, your right to have your own boundaries and how you figure out what those boundaries are for you and how you communicate that to other people. That you you know you might be having sex with or whatever it's a very grown up conversation to have about sex and i don't think we're good at it like as a society in general we're not good at talking about sex i mean y- you're going to know that like from yeah. all the work that you do well, and the podcast um people are really reluctant to talk about sex and there's almost like a you have to admit that it is something that happens and that people do for pleasure and that um you know we don't talk about it enough we don't understand it well enough we don't understand the psychology of it well enough and we need to talk more about that sort of thing. I think.
1: I think consent as well is a really big topic because even last night in the strip club, I I was doing my shift, and we are no contact. There will be different clubs um, in different areas, and I, I think maybe a few in a few boroughs, that have. I wouldn't. I wouldn't actually know, but they maybe have a thing where you can touch someone's leg or something. But from what I understand, in the UK, you are not allowed to touch people's intimate areas in strip clubs. And I didn't know in a lot of places in America you're not allowed to do that, but still they have looser ways of getting around it and stuff. I personally wouldn't do the job if I was touched, if, if that was the laws, that was my boundary. And that's a very clear boundary I set for myself. Um, but people still try and violate it all the time. And they say, well, this is a strip club. And I said, yeah, strip club not touch club strip Mm -hmm. do you understand the word do you want me to get you a dictionary and I always think people probably feel more inclined to treat me a certain way in that place because they have connotations of what it's like even though we have signs saying don't touch the girls Mm -hmm.
0: this is not something I know very well but I think there's a there's a big element of this to do with respect Mm. and I think when people are Accessing those types of services, whether it's, like, in a strip club or even, like, other, like... Full service. Yeah, full service, like, sexual services and stuff like that. There's this assumption that because you're the customer, you can get whatever you want. Mm. And that the other person's not entitled to have any boundaries.
1: And that there's always a price. Yeah.
0: People ask me how
1: much to go back to my hotel room. And I do think everyone has a price. I do. I
0: think everyone does. Every, every, everyone's entitled to have a price if they want one, but like, Mine, also, they're also entitled to say no, and that's the end of the conversation, right? Like, it's um, mine's regardless just five hundred million. <laughs> 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 Great. Well, so you know your you know your worth and you know your value. I think my price is a lot lower than that, to be honest. But um, tenner and a pack of chips. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I um, full disclosure, I did once when I was in university. Um, I was uh, doing a year abroad, and um, I was, it was like, this was on very old technology. This was back into like 2002, 2003. I was messaging with someone in the country where I was. And um, which country were you? France. Oh, um, okay. And he, yeah, he, they're quite horny. He offered me money for sex. Mm. And I was like, I really broke. Um, you know, I'd been working a lot before I did my year abroad to like save. And I didn't have enough money and money was really tight. And I was like, I was on like a maintenance grant and stuff because like my family were low enough income for that whatever. So I was like, hmm, this is like actually a good proposition for me right now. And it's something that I think I want to try to see if it's for me. And I went and did it. But in my head, the biggest problem I had at the time was how can I charge this person for something I give away for free so much? Mm. That was kind of where my head was. And also I'm quite socially anxious and a big people pleaser. And so I, in in that situation, I kind of didn't feel like I had or deserved to have any boundaries. But also I like I wanted to make sure that I I was delivering a good service Mm. and uh, I didn't want to kind of fall short. um, And so I went into it with like the wrong, I think the wrong attitude. um, And without having kind of considered that, you know, you know, I could have boundaries or anything like that. But, you know, uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a bad experience. It's just one that I didn't repeat after that.
1: It's interesting and for you saying that and thank you for sharing your story because I think a lot of people do engage in sex work and they don't even really know about it. You know, whether you're sleeping with someone for a promotion in a job, which you shouldn't do, that's very naughty. It's not fair to the other people in the system. Um, or, you know, someone wants to marry into a family of wealth and uh, you could call that a form of prostitution. But even when you look at the sex work sector in terms of full service, with the gay community, they don't necessarily have all the things in place that the straight community do have. It's a little bit more underground from what I recognize. If you go onto like an escort website, you'll have a whole list of what the girls are willing to do, what they're not willing to do, what they don't want to do, and da 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 da, da. From my research, you have obviously like a few kind of what you would call, I don't like this word, but high-class um, escort surfacing for gay people. You don't really tend to find lesbian ones. But you don't necessarily have all those boundary lists of w- what you're willing to offer, what you're not wanting to offer.
0: Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it, like in the course of my work, I've seen it a bit. And also like in the, you know, when I was going out a lot on the gay scene, there were, you mm. know, free magazines you could get. And at the back, there were some escorts listed. And you know, there'd, Fernando. There'd, there'd be a pi- yeah, yeah. there'll be a picture and there'll be like a description. And you might see, and you get this online as well a lot for like somebody who might have like a commercial profile on, on a dating website. yeah there won't be a list of boundaries necessarily. Some people will have some boundaries and they back. like, I don't do this. Mm. But there'll be a price list. Yeah. Right? Like, so if you want this, this is how much it, it costs. And yeah. I think it's perfectly fine for people, obviously, to to yeah. set out what does and doesn't work for them and, and uh, you know, how much they're going to charge for that or what, what yeah. their price is, as we were talking before. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But I don't know the economy is like for gay and bisexual men in that area. Um, I've, I've met several people. That's their main source of income. Yeah. They don't really like talk about it a lot. Um, mm. in, like, the circles that we're, that we're in. But, like, I know that that's where they get you, their income from.
1: I think you mentioned you get a lot of phone calls off um, people who've engaged with sex workers on the helpline.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so our, we've got we talked earlier on about, like, the broad different range of services we have. We do a lot of community outreach service in the places where we have sexual health contracts or sexual health services. Mm. So in places like Brighton and Bristol, we have specific sex worker outreach where we try and reach people who are uh, who other services aren't reaching very well, I think mm. is, is the way I would describe it. And I was talking to our head of um, statutory services earlier who was telling me about um, in Bristol, we've got this, um, so we've got two things. We have a sex worker breakfast where people can come along and it's not about testing for HIV or anything like that. It's about just coming and having peer support with other people who are in the sex industry and talking about like maybe experiences that people have had bad day in the office yeah sometimes like you know the national ugly mug yeah yeah it's real peer support as in it's managed by you know other people who are involved in the sex Mm. industry and you know it's um it's an open forum where people can have a chat but they also have a fast track service so if you're um, a sex worker in bristol you can get a card which if you approach one of the sexual health clinics like that uh, we're involved in you show them the card You'll get fast tracked for testing, so mm. you'll go straight in. I think, but also they won't ask you all the questions. Yeah, um, you know, it'll just be like an easy judgment judgment free, um, stigma free service that will also be express. If you know what I mean.
1: One thing I've always struggled with when I've gone into a clinic to get a sexual health test. Is obviously now with the job I do, I'm an exotic dancer, stripper, whatever you wanna label it. When I was a burlesque dancer, I never really counted myself as a sex worker, but I guess mm. because the nature of what you do is you dance in a very sexual way. They always ask, are you a sex worker in the sexual health clinic? And I, I kind of am, like I am, mm. but also I'm not engaging within sexual contact. So almost like if I'm not, I do tick that box because I am. Um, But, like, I don't know if I'm inviting questions that...
0: Loads of people do, like, for example, solo-only fans. Yeah. And they would be sex workers, right? They might not class themselves as sex workers, but, like, that is the same kind of industry. Um, But they're not at risk of acquiring STIs or or HIV. Yeah, that's probably not the right way to ask that question.
1: Uh, But then again, if we go into the... And it's good we're speaking about it, but if we go into kind of saying, are you a contact-only sex worker or a full-service sex worker... Is that almost othering them and saying they're this type of sex worker? And yeah. Because there's a lot of judgment. You know, there's almost this joke of strippers don't like prostitutes because basically it's the more extreme version, and they think, why would you do that? Yeah. You know. Um.
0: When when I tried it, I enjoyed it. <laughs> the only reason I didn't do any more of it was I was too anxious. Too um, anxious. Yeah. I mean, I was only 19. Or yeah, I think I was. I was young i might have been 18 i was 18 or 19 um and i was terrified and you know just really anxious about the whole situation but the actual job itself didn't put me off no i was just like i was like i was doing this for free quite a lot with a lot of different people and if i'm gonna get paid to do it and somebody's happy to pay me to do it then great but you know there are lots of people who do it because they enjoy the job Mm. um that's important to recognize that like a lot of again coming back to like political discussion in the media and stuff there's a lot of this just assumption that if that's your job or if that's what you do it's because you've got no other option or you're forced into it um and you know they talk about like trafficking and all that kind of stuff like they immediately go to the the extreme yeah yeah Yeah. and it's like no there are plenty of people who choose it as a career because it's what works for them Mm -hmm. and they should be free to do that like
1: I mean, there's a lot of, from what I know, and my friends who do do full service, not necessarily with themselves because they don't necessarily want women. A lot of um, men hire other men in forms of prostitute um, for sex work, so gay prostitution. Mm-hmm. But obviously straight men who want to try something, like you said, the men who are straight but want to try um a gay or bisexual experience. As I said, there's a lot of men in strip clubs who don't feel like they can express sexuality, but they obviously tell a stripper or someone they're working with about that because they don't feel the shame there, they don't feel the stigma. Mm. And I just think how many like men are not having full and complete sex lives, you know, because they're not being open. Yeah. But it's always the same age. The same luck from the same generation of men.
0: I remember like one phone call I took on the helpline a couple of years ago, and it was from a guy, and he had uh, paid a male sex worker because he wanted to try you know, having sex. I hope you paid him very
1: handsomely.
0: Um well he kinda said so he was he was asking questions about STI and HIV risk, you know, and he was asking them in a, you know, sensible and respectful way, it wasn't like because sometimes you get people who call up who you know procured the services of a sex worker and suddenly there's a lot of stigmatizing language about um the other person mm. and you know i don't really have much time for that um but this guy was he was quite respectful but he was basically saying that um he had um he had been the receptive partner in anal sex because that's what he wanted to try and because people said to him like you might find it pleasurable or whatever so he's like i'll give it a go and he decided that he would do it you know uh by you know paying someone to um to do that um and i think one of the big things for him was he was disappointed that he didn't enjoy it
1: he didn't or he did he didn't Mm.
0: and and so part of me i was trying to answer his questions and like give him emotional support at the same time as well but part of me wanted to say like maybe it just wasn't the right circumstance maybe you should try it again because like it can be very pleasurable Um, yeah you know um but you know i I was kind of like you know you tried something it maybe it's not for you and that's okay um and you know well done on you for at least giving it a go you know
1: um does he see it as a waste if he didn't enjoy it like i
0: don't know mm -hmm. it's like it's like he had to overcome the ideas of masculinity and the ideas of like i'm heterosexual just see maybe what i might enjoy or like test a boundary or whatever and then it's like so i've i've put in this effort and it's not paid off
1: if anyone worries about masculinity and kind of dibbling and dabbling and you're a straight man, Tom Hardy used to dibble and dabble apparently. So you can't get any more masculine than
0: that. Um, Yeah. You yeah. talk about like masculinity and Ugh. like the, the like ideal of masculinity and, you know, all of these kind of like big kind of muscle band guys. And mm-hmm. it's like if you go down to the gym and you see all these big muscle band guys, like, well, at least, I mean, I, I live in central London half of them or more are gay like you probably know probably on steroids <laughs> some are yeah
1: would you call them a bear uh
0: i think well I, I i'm not too up on all the different language but like bear is generally there's some hair involved so they might okay. be like like they might have a beard they might have mm. like a hairy chest or whatever they might be quite muscly mm. um, they might have like quite big arms and stuff like that a big chest but they, they might also have a bit of a belly so okay. it just depends like people have different definitions of bear and bear is quite like a wide term for different people I've heard Um, like
1: twink as well.
0: Yeah. Twink. That's like a kind of like younger, more fresh faced (laughs) kind of. um, Yeah. I think I was probably a twink in my teens. Um. (laughs)
1: Twink and proud.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, So coming back to that point, like, you know, lots of people will try different things. Mm. And sometimes what happens and what we find when people call our helpline is that because they've maybe tried something that's outside of the norm for them or that they think is a bit taboo i know like you've been talking a lot about kind of taboo things on the podcast yeah. they assume that there's going to be some big disastrous consequence and immediately for some reason stis and hiv is the thing that they think is going to happen so like i've done this thing and it might be you know i procured the services of a sex worker or it might be I sat on a towel. i've tried yeah i've tried whatever <laughs> um for the first time and so they're like convinced that they must therefore have contracted an STI or HIV as a result. And you have to kind of explain to them that viruses and bacteria don't make moral judgments about what you're doing and then decide whether or not to intervene. Like they have to be present and they have to be able to be transmitted from one person to another. And sometimes when people are talking about worries about risks they think they might have had, they're talking about a scenario that it would be impossible for anything to be passed on. And, you know, but the anxiety is very real. And so we have to kind of get people to understand that that's just not the way that viruses and bacteria work.
1: Well, it's interesting like with the education I think what you're saying let's look at the science, let's look at like what is actually evidence and proof and we've discussed I'm I wouldn't regard myself as a religious person and I think actually when it comes to religion it actually doesn't it has less of a place in a school for young people than science and sexual health does because it's not fact, it's not evidence. So it's interesting that people are willing to put these ideals and I don't know if indoctrination is a powerful word but like products of a dogma onto someone and deny the evidence. I just think it's bizarre. Um, But yeah, anyway. (laughs) Um, The last thing I kind of want to touch on is sex. Oh, okay. So... Kind of what are the best courses of action for people to look after themselves within chemsex in regards to HIV? He said, with the mental and then like with the physical kind of precautions.
0: Yeah, I think like it comes back to that idea of understanding what's right for you, understanding your own boundaries, what you are and aren't like willing to do. And obviously, when drugs or or chems of any kind are involved, like that can get blurred quite quickly.
1: So, chem is including all drugs.
0: Yeah, yeah. Any kind of like chemical assistance or stimulants that you might have in in sexualized drug use Um, so it's where uh, in most cases it will be where somebody is either taking drugs to enhance the experience of having sex with the pleasure or to prolong it. Or, um, you know, for lots of different reasons, they might, or because, um, you know, sex while high is something that they're they're looking for. For some people, that is the only way that they can have the kind of sex that they want to have. And sometimes that's psychological. So yep. you might get some people who are like, you know, I will only have this type of sex if I'm really high. And then maybe I'll have regrets about it afterwards, you know. And so, like, there's a psychological element that needs to be addressed there. And that person probably needs a bit of support and a bit of counseling and, you know, a bit of understanding. Mm-hmm. So you know, whilst understanding the psychology around it is important, um, and also to understand like what is right for you as an individual and also, you know, think the practical things of like where is it coming from and can I trust that it's, you know, not gonna kill me or, you know, whatever else and dosing and all that kind of stuff. You have to know all of that stuff. But in terms of sexual health and STI and HIV risk, I think it's really important to be aware of PrEP. So that's, you know, something that It's we want more and more people to be aware of PrEP. So I mentioned before, it's pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's a pill that you can take. The easiest way to take it, the way that everyone can take it, is to take one pill every day. And it will stop you from being able to acquire HIV. So it prevents HIV from taking hold. So even if you come in contact with HIV, if you have sex without a condom, PrEP will stop HIV from uh, taking hold in your body. That's something that we need people to be aware of. It's available for free on the NHS if you go to a GUM or sexual health clinic. Uh, you can have an assessment for prep. It's available to both men and women, and you know non-binary people and others. There are different ways that you can take it. If you are a man and/or you mainly have anal sex, you can do you can take it in about three different ways. There's what's known as event-based dosing. So uh, as little as two or up to 24 hours before you have sex, if you take a double dose of the pill, it will effective and then you have to take it for a certain number of days afterwards you can check our website for any of the details around this or the i one website has some um, good um, good information around that if you're a woman and you're mainly having vaginal sex you need to take one pill every day um, and that's partly because it takes longer to be absorbed into the vaginal tract than it does uh, elsewhere but everybody can take one pill every day and that will protect you from from hiv So, that's important for people to know, particularly if they're engaging in chemsex, because a lot of the time, if you go to like a chemsex party or something like that, it could last, you know, an entire weekend or an entire week or longer. So, it's important to remember like maybe set an alarm make sure that you're taking your prep on a regular basis and stuff like that if it's lasting longer than maybe you initially expected it to make sure you have um enough prep with you to to last the duration
1: or maybe on your fitness watch if you have one on and stuff yeah you can
0: set yourself a reminder there are like little pill cases you can take to have like you know a a few pills with you
1: because if you're at in the chem sex party having fun you're not going to be looking at your phone
0: no 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 you might you might not be even looking at what day it is um i don't know so yeah that sort of thing is important to remember you know um I know it's not fashionable these days, but be aware of condoms. They're a thing you can use and they will protect you um, against uh, HIV and STIs. Make sure you're getting tested on a regular basis for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're just regularly sexually active, whether it's chemsex or not, I think it's really important to be aware of that. And also know where to go if either things go wrong or uh, you need support around it. Because like some people, I'm not one of them. You know, I've mentioned before, addiction has been part of my story. I'm not somebody who can either... Uh, drink or take drugs in any kind of moderation so for me it's like all or nothing so I've been sober for five years now I know that there isn't a way that I can safely and for my own mental health be able to engage in anything to do with drugs or alcohol and that's just you know me and there's a lot of people who you know are predisposed to addiction and that might be the case for them there's lots of help and support available if that's the situation that you're in but then there's lots of other people who can do it perfectly well and you know have control over it and it's something that they do that it's either enhancing their pleasure or it's it's allowing them to have the type of sex that they want. And, you know, it's providing them some sort of benefit without necessarily giving them the mental health side effects that might come with it for somebody who is predisposed to addiction or who might be struggling with a, some kind of a, aspect of like the psychosexual and therefore is engaging in chem. So there's like different types of people who would be involved in chem sex. That's the important thing to And it's important to know what category you might be in, but also... Be aware of the fact that it can lead to, um, it could lead to addiction, it could lead to mental health side effects that maybe you're not looking for, and it's important to know where to go to get support if that does happen. Um, so we've got a chemsex counseling service. And there is an organization called Controlling Chemsex who who can help with stuff like that. I know you spoke recently to uh, the people at Dean Street. They've got a really great chemsex service there as well. We work with them in our chemsex service to deliver support and stuff to people. So all of those things are important to be aware of. In different parts of the country, there will be different services available. And some kind of just general drug and alcohol recovery services have some specialist kind of chemsex services as, as uh, attached to them. There are lots of ways that you can get support if you need support. So if you try something and it's not right for you, you know, maybe try something else. You can always call our helpline mm. um, for, for you know signposting or help or support around that, or if you just want to talk. But yeah, I mean, th- there's chemisex is something that I mean, particularly in the gay community or in the LGBT community, it's something that's been a big phenomenon for quite a few years. For some people, it's causing some issues. For other people, it's just like, it's the way that, it's what they do. But, you know, we just need people to be aware of making sure that they're looking after themselves, testing on a regular basis, be aware of PrEP. And if if you find that it's, too much, or it's not right for you. Know where to go to to get some help and support. It is something that, as well, we're seeing increasingly with young people who, you know, like aqua- across the queer spectrum, are getting more involved in, you know, uh, relationships with multiple people and stuff like that. It's becoming much more fluid. I think um, yeah. the way that people are approaching relationships and 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 sexuality and sex. Um, so chemsex is is part of, you know, what people are looking into. So it's not just gay people who are involved in chemsex, obviously. Um, and you know it's everything
1: if you're on cocaine and you're having sex that's chem
0: sex yeah or if you're um, you know in in my case for a a long time when I was a cocaine addict on cocaine and on my own um, I was still engaging in chem sex like Mm. I was uh, online for days and you know and that's sexualized drug use it just doesn't involve another person and therefore doesn't involve like STI risk necessarily but That is something that I really struggled with and again for me like a lot of the mental health stuff was what was leading me to that place and what I needed to do was deal with the underlying mental health issues that I had to be able to get out of that spiral I was in.
1: Yeah I think that's also really important to say that you can have preventative methods of thinking about it from a very mental aspect of being intentional why you are engaging in chem sex versus um, not having that intention yeah. and stuff,
0: and it's also important to remember that not everybody engaging in chemsex is doing it in a harmful or um it, you know it's not always soothing some under underlying mental health condition um, it's just that for those people who are it's important to be aware of it and also to know where to go to get support
1: A lot of men that <laughs> me and my friends um have dated or you know had sex with cocaine is the constant rude line mm. and i think as well in cities it's common it, it, it makes you feel more alive it boosts your personality i tried it once personally wasn't never into it but so many guys are like let me do a line before like i have sex and it's almost they need to amplify of what's already in there before sex and it helps them last longer yeah as well but sometimes i'm just like i, 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 I don't want that i just want you yeah you know yeah romantic I think
0: um you know from people I've spoken to my own personal experience it is something that will generally like make you last longer for some people it's it's the opposite it will just like kill it immediately Mm. Um, but for some people it will um you know it will enhance things I think a lot of it is psychological so it's like it gives you confidence that you didn't otherwise have and I think there are other ways to access that confidence and also for me it It's like false intimacy in a certain way Mm. as well. Before I did a lot of therapy and work on myself and got into rehab and all that kind of stuff. I did not understand what intimacy was at all. Mm. Like I didn't have any experience of what intimacy looked like or felt like or anything like that. It was something that kind of scared me. And for me, even from a young age, like sex was just something that I did because it was pleasurable and like involved another person. Um, It wasn't something that I did that was like necessarily had romantic connotations or I didn't understand like
1: what you said is such just like a boy thing, like I can't like sex is just the thing and I really enjoy it and I can go and do it and I can like for me it's my
0: my first sexual experiences were with friends of mine. Yeah and we didn't have any like we were friends who had sex. Yeah. Um and um yeah and I you know I I I went on my first date with a guy when I was like sixteen and like we had sex and stuff and that that was a bit different. But I never really kind of like really properly understood what what intimacy could be like until I got into like I'm in relationship now for 16 years and I've learned a lot during the course of that relationship you know I've gone through some really difficult uh, periods like that during this relationship that I got my HIV diagnosis that I got really into addiction um, I'm very lucky that my partner's stuck with me um this time and um you know our, our relationship is better than ever um but it's only now that I'm really understand the value of intimacy and that it's not as scary as I thought it was but I think coming back to the point about like lots of people taking cocaine i think it's it's partly as a way of short-circuiting that kind of intimacy barrier if yeah. you know what i mean and i'm sure you get it in the clubs as well that like loads of people who are coming in oh i prey on people high. who are high on cocaine yeah, yeah. like <laughs> well because <laughs> like the the bound ba- like the barriers are down yeah and it's like they'll do anything so like you know they'll be quite free with money and stuff as well.
1: well when people mention they're on cocaine i try and instantly walk away because i don't want to lose my job i don't want to even know that you're on it if you're on it fine fair enough but there was this guy who he was raving he's like i've lost my bag i've lost my bag and he's like no one's getting any dances until i find my bag and stuff so all these girls were like looking on the floor looking for this bag that he'd lost and stuff but not intentionally because no we don't want to comply yeah um because drugs are wrong no, you don't even, <laughs> have you to say don't even
0: complicit in somebody else's like yeah. possession of a class a substance. <laughs> like, if, if um, anyone's
1: gonna come for me i'll give a disclaimer of drugs are wrong you shouldn't be taking them um unless it's in a country that's legalized
0: i have a slightly different um, it's, it's
1: not how i feel but it's what i should say
0: yeah 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 for me i'm, I'm happy to say that like i know drugs aren't right for me Yeah, I know other people who can like perfectly well take drugs, and it's it's great for them. Personally, I'm in favor of decriminalization and legalization of pretty much all drugs, Mm. but as long as the support is available for people who do struggle with addiction and stuff like that, which I don't think it is. But then
1: they're gonna start watering that shit down. Do you want that? Well, I mean, I suppose it doesn't affect you too much anymore.
0: I think kind of the opposite because like there's a lot of like contaminated stuff that's out there, um, and if it was properly regulated and you knew exactly what you were getting, it would be like a bit less of a. People would would not struggle with dosing as much as well. I don't know. It's um, um, anyway, that's getting <laughs> too much into the drug side of things. But when it comes to like sexualized drug use and stuff, you know, people can struggle. Um, drugs can be a way of like people overcoming certain like barriers that they might have in their mind about sex.
1: And strippers will fleece you of all your money when you're on cocaine. I, like,
0: I think. I think quite rightly in many ways like um, people who are going into that kind of situation and they're going in high they're there to have a good time and you're part of like making (laughs) sure that they do and so you deserve to be compensated for that
1: I think (laughs) everyone looks sexier on it though oh yeah sometimes I've looked like an absolute I remember I went on holiday and had sunburn all over my face and I was peeling I was like I'm gonna make no money tonight but I have to show up and there was this one guy, and he must have been on some. I think he was on a concoction of things, and he was like, "You're the most beautiful person I've ever met," and he kept on speaking to million miles an hour. And I was just like, "I'm really not tonight. Like, my face is actually peeling off." But anyway, five hundred pounds later. <laughs> um, Anyway, this isn't a stripping episode. This is um, a Terence Higgins trust episode.
0: Yeah. No. Um. I think. Coming back to the point about like how do you make sure that you look after your sexual health when you're in that kind of situation, uh, PrEP is really important. I think people need to be more aware of PrEP. Um, when we were talking before, uh, you know, I was talking about the inequality in access to PrEP. So whilst gay and bisexual men in particular have been using PrEP for a long time, it's led to a large decrease in new cases of HIV. It's really great. It's now available for free on the NHS. If you look at um, how PrEP is getting to people... There are no local authorities in England where there are more than five women signed up for PrEP in that area. That's something that, like, it's a scandal we really need to change. There's too much gatekeeping as well of PrEP in, um, in those services. And women aren't being recommended PrEP when they should be. But to compare to that, like no more than five in any one local authority, uh, you know, women accessing PrEP. Dean Street, who you're talking to before, they have more than 20,000 gay and bisexual men signed up to their PrEP program. They've been leading on this for years and they've been running the program for, for a long time. I think if you look at the statistics, there are more people signed up through Dean Street to be on PrEP than there are in all of France as a, just as a comparison. And I think more there than in probably in the rest of the UK combined. Like they're doing really, really well. But what we need is for uh, that type of service where they're really actively, um, you know, trying to get prep to people to be available everywhere and to be available to women, to heterosexual people, everyone who needs it.
1: I think I mentioned to you before in the Netherlands when I used to live there, I was just doing a routine sexual health test and they asked when was the last time I did bloods for HIV. And I said oh, six months ago. And they said, "Oh well, we won't give you one because unless you're participating in someone you know who's had um, been exposed to HIV, and you're a straight woman, we're not going to give you um, and waste a HIV test and stuff because you're not at risk." But like you said, with the statistics of women having HIV, it's actually probably more important to have that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, in in the UK, we have too many instances of. Somebody who should have been offered an HIV test mm. not being offered an HIV test. Better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, like as an organisation, we will almost never say to someone like you shouldn't have an HIV test. The only, the only times that I've I've ever said that to anyone is like people who've called our helpline who've been like, I had this risk three months ago. Or like more than three months ago i've done 12 hiv tests they've all come back negative i'm like you don't need to do any more tests health anxiety yeah what you need yeah. to do is focus on your anxiety because this is like it's not healthy th- these it's impossible for 12 tests to be wrong you know that taken at different times with different blood samples like th- you know you this should give you comfort and doing a 13th test isn't going to tell you anything that the first 12 didn't um, because you know it's been the right window period and you've done the right thing and you've taken the right test but you know other than those extreme examples we will recommend that people you know are encouraged when they want to have a test to have to be given a test Um, there are too many scenarios where women especially are engaging in um, sexual and reproductive health services um, should be offered a test or should be offered prep and then don't get offered that Mm. Um, another thing to be aware of when it comes to like testing is you know we talked about earlier on the different ways that people can test. You can test at home. You can test in a GUM clinic at your GP. Um, if you're living in an area of England with very high HIV prevalence right now, so that's uh, London, Manchester, Salford, uh, Brighton, Blackpool, a few places like that, um, and you go to A and E for any reason and they're taking blood. Um, they will automatically test you for HIV now. Okay. Um, that is something that people in the past might have thought that just happened anyway. Um, but it's something that we've had to have a long campaign on to roll out this what's called opt-out testing um, in, in accidents and emergency departments. The next thing that we want is for that to be rolled out to areas of high HIV prevalence next. And those are a lot of the other kind of big cities in England. So like Newcastle, Nottingham, Leicester, places like that. And what we found in the first year of that being available in uh, in those A&Es is they're testing for hepatitis B, hepatitis C and HIV. They have found hundreds of people that they wouldn't have otherwise found with hep B, hep C or HIV. They've also found people who were living with HIV who'd previously been diagnosed, but had disengaged in services. Um, so they weren't taking their medication and they managed to re-engage them in services. And, you know, you're talking about like rural areas and like people who aren't normally targeted for testing um, I think the first person who uh, got a reactive result from an opt-out test in A&E was a white woman in her 70s mm. um, who would not otherwise have been tested for HIV so that's why it's really important that like as we get closer to that 2030 goal of eliminating transmission we're not just focusing on the traditional what they call key population groups the um, gay and bisexual men uh, and other men who have sex with men who are about 40 times more likely to be living with HIV than the general population uh, black people of African heritage in the UK um, men minorities and women, yeah um, that are about seven times more likely to be living with HIV than the general population black people of Caribbean heritage about twice as likely um, so there are some groups that Uh, because there's been higher prevalence they've been targeted with testing and services more and like stuff's been advertised to them that a lot of that work i mean there's still more of that that needs to be done and there are still communities that aren't being reached in the right ways but as we get closer and closer to the 2030 goals we have to widen the net more and it's going to be more difficult to find um, those few people in like lots of different areas of the country in lots of different communities Um, and we need people to be aware to test for HIV on a regular basis if they're sexually active older people as well who might be getting out of long-term relationships uh, might be post menopausal not thinking about contraception having sex for the first time in a while with different people make sure that they're aware and that they're testing as well because um, the numbers of people living with HIV who are young are going down quite significantly but because the numbers of people your work yeah, yeah yeah well largely yeah the number of people over 50 is going up quite significantly like massively, partly because, partly that's a really good news story because people who are diagnosed with, their, with HIV in their 20s, 30s, and 40s are living into their 50s, 60s, and 70s, which they didn't always used to do. So that's good news. But there are also people being diagnosed. Um, and if you're older, um, if you're heterosexual, if you're white, um, if you're black African as well, you are disproportionately likely to be diagnosed late. Um, so that means after HIV has had a chance to weaken your immune system to a certain level. Um, and that's something that we really want to avoid. Like, if you're diagnosed late, you can still go on a medication, you can still get an undetectable viral load, you could still live a long and healthy life. But it is associated with uh, worse outcomes health-wise, especially in the first year after diagnosis. So we want people to be te- to be diagnosed as early as possible. Um, and that also stops the onward transmission of HIV, because if you're diagnosed early, you won't have had as much time maybe to pass it on to someone else
1: um i don't know if this helps with your 2030 goal but um the the pensioners are are getting on a lot there's a really high sexual um, infection rate with pensioners especially in care homes Mm. i didn't know about and and maybe people don't think about that group you know as a
0: we're we're doing more and more work in care homes at the moment gladys Um,
1: and keith
0: yeah 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 um (laughs) Just to, like to make people aware, um, you know, older people have sex too. Let's not forget that. Um, quite a lot of it. Yeah, and um, you know, they might they might be having you know quite active, quite um, healthy and happy sex lives, um, and, but they need to be aware of of the risks associated with that.
1: Especially because they had zero
0: education growing up. Yeah, a lot of people that age, you know, might not have had any sex education, um, and when they go to their GP with symptoms that if they were in their 20s they'd be like oh let's just do these tests the gp looks at the person and thinks doesn't think about sex and we need to like make sure that people are starting to you know realize that everybody is a sexual being in their own way and you know maybe maybe having quite an active sex life
1: they're the people who've probably had the most sex in the world pensioners because they're the oldest so it makes sense why they'd want to um master their expertise i suppose
0: <laughs> the, the the other thing that we're seeing more and more of is because um we're probably at a stage now where or very soon there'll be more people over 50 with hiv than under 50 mm. uh, and that's only going to increase into the future particularly for success sort at of stopping transmission um people who were diagnosed with hiv in the 80s and 90s who are still alive today mm. there are you know not as many as there should be, but there there are quite a few people, are at that stage, that age where they might be needing care either in their own home or in a care home. And we know from the work that we've been doing that those organizations, those care homes, those carers don't really know much about HIV and might have outdated information. So we're trying to get the latest information to people to make sure that um, one one of the people who volunteers with my programs in her 70s, um, she's been speaking about HIV for years and she says, we don't want to go back into the HIV closet. Like, mm. you know, we've done all this work getting HIV to where it is and like overcoming stigma. I don't want to have to go into a care home and be silent about it or, you know, be treated differently. Or we've heard of cases of people who are like going into the room of somebody who's living with HIV and putting on like loads of PPE like they're walking into like a, a nuclear reactor or something. And it's like, that is completely unnecessary that we should have left that behind in the 1980s. We know how HIV is transmitted. S- somebody's not going to be a risk if you're, um, you know, wiping up after them or washing them or providing those kinds of services that you would need to provide to someone in a care home. And it's also important that you know that person is taking their medication, you know, every day on time um, and stuff like that. So we- Especially we if have are Yeah, yeah. We have yeah. work to do to make sure that carers are aware of this Um, being a carer is like a really difficult job because it's extremely poorly paid it's very difficult it's very specialized work it's really undervalued i think again this comes back to like gender inequality because it's seen as like a a female role and therefore worth less than and you know i don't know many people who could be a very good carer and do it well and would accept that kind of level of wage especially Um, anyway sorry that's that's Mm. going on but they also don't have a lot of time so they don't have a huge amount of time to learn about things like HIV so what we're trying to do is be quite innovative in getting bite-sized information to people who are carers or working in a care environment so that if if one of the people that they're caring for is living with HIV that they know what they need to know to make sure that that person gets the right level of care that it's uh, free of stigma and that they know that that it's not a risk to them
1: okay all right So we are wrapping up a little bit now. Um, How can people best support the charity, um, whether it's through fundraising, volunteering? What's the best course?
0: Well, there's lots of things you can do to help. Some of the most straightforward are, you know, how you can help us to get to the 2030 goal of eliminating transmission is take care of your sexual health, look after yourself, test for HIV and STIs, and, you know, take a healthy attitude to looking after your, your sexual health. So that's really important. There are lots of ways that you can fundraise and help us raise money to get to those goals. If you check out our website and click on, uh, so go to tht.org.uk, you can find links there to different ways that you can fundraise or donate. There are lots of things that people do. Everything from like shaving their head to a marathon to standing at a train station with a bucket on World AIDS Day. There's loads of things you can do to help or standing outside a theatre. You can volunteer. So if you go onto our website as well, there are volunteer roles available and there's everything from in some of our local sexual health services, uh, there's some volunteer roles there. You could do like volunteer receptionist or if you're living with HIV, you can volunteer as a positive voices speaker in the program that I run. There are also jobs available, you know, if, if people are, are looking for paid work. And the other thing that people can do is, um you know, follow us on social media. And when we're putting out information about different campaigns you know amplify those and talk to your friends about the fact that people on effective HIV treatment can pass on the virus you know let's start normalizing conversations about sexual health that's another thing that you can do to to really help lots of campaigns come up a lot of it's to do with like what's going on in politics and stuff but you'll see from our social media that we we also support other organizations campaigns so recently for example the be past the British Pregnancy Advisory Service we're trying to make sure that so during COVID they uh, moved to a process where if you needed um, emergency contraception you could get it through the post and you could have a telephone consultation about the fact that you needed that and it would be prescribed and it would be sent you in the post um, and that was just put in for covid but there was a campaign after kind of lockdowns ended to make sure that that was still available because it was actually a service that people were finding quite useful and quite uh beneficial and so we supported um you know some of the campaigns to make sure that that could continue and it was voted through and that is available now so there are lots of things like that that come up from time to time where we need people to be aware of issues around their rights and stuff like that and maybe to sign a letter or sign a petition or you know there's a form sometimes you can fill out to automatically write to your local mp about stuff stuff like that can be really helpful as well
1: Mm-hmm. okay yeah that, that is a lot of ways people can support as well you you're very good at covering everything in a conversation i'm sure i've forgotten <laughs> something <laughs> um okay so my final question for you before we wrap up is what would be your stripper name
0: what would be my stripper name oh that's really hard the um i i randomly I had my parents visiting me a couple of weeks ago and I dropped them off they were going back to the airport I dropped them off um, and I was walking home and I had some friends who were over for a barbecue and I was walking through this park and this this name came into my head which I was like this would be a really good drag name Mm -hmm. um and it was Miss Diana Gnosis (laughs) oh
1: and your routine can be around that as well
0: (laughs) yeah I I guess it would work as a stripper name as well but um uh, well maybe not it's a bit, um, yeah, it's a bit medical. But
1: <laughs> I watched um, a burlesque recently that was to do with a woman who was a, a weather reader. So you can be a bit on the nose with it. Oh.
0: Okay, don't rule out. I, I once went to a burlesque show um, in Soho. I can't remember what the occasion was. There was some occasion, and then we ended up going to this this thing, and it was um, it was a lot more extreme than I was expecting. Mm. Um, like it was it was fun, but I was like, wow. And like people were really into it. And I was like, you know, a first timer at this, you know, interesting burlesque. I was just like, wow, this is like this happens a lot, like in lots of different places.
1: (laughs) But I'm happy to be here and it's it's all good. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, I've been around gay bars a lot in my teens and 20s and not so much now because i'm like i just turned 40 and i'm in a long-term relationship and i just stay at home with my partner and the dog that were we fostered guide dogs for the yeah. blind um as, as as a volunteer role and so like i'm very much like a, a home bird now i go to bed early like um yeah i've turned into i've gone into my middle age early but but back in in those days like uh i would go to a lot of gay bars and there would be like lots of different types of shows like drag shows and all the rest of it but you got a lot of gay bars where they would just employ strippers to like strip and, and dance on a pole and stuff what like that women men oh okay yeah.
1: i was about to say <laughs> i don't know what i have that you want
0: but <laughs> well, some, uh, like you, you would sometimes get women as well in, yeah in some of those um in some of those places but it wasn't like it's, it's kind of different because it wasn't like a strip club and people weren't necessarily tipping them mm. as much i mean i'm sure some people were but it was just they were dancing on the bar, in a bar. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like,
1: Try Hunkamania. That's that's always a good night out. A Magic Mike, apparently that's not that good. So yeah. That's the one in Leicester Square. Yeah, we ha- have a lot of customers, female customers who come in for a Magic Mike saying they weren't really satisfied because it's too artsy now. It's about the performance. They just want to oh, okay. see some cock in their face, really. <laughs> Um, I understand that but there we go on that note (laughs) um, thank you Eugene for your time thanks for having me are there any links people can follow Uh,
0: Uh, yeah so if you go to tht.org.uk you can find all the information we've been talking about Um, you can also find signposting to sexual health services or if you call our helpline tht direct um, you can search for that online we can help with any questions you might have or signposting to any kind of services and then if you follow us on social media we're generally at tht uk um, all one word on most uh, social platforms
1: thank you so much thank you <laughs> if you would like to learn more follow the links that Yuji mentioned thank you for listening to this episode of sexonomics all our social links and listening platforms will be available a tap link in the bio thank you so much for your time speak to you soon
0: bye